Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. I guess we're going to get started. This is first episode of 2024. And um, Derek, I don't know how many times we've discussed this, but you need to put down that plate of spaghetti and wipe your mouth off. Quit making all those fucking mouth noises into the mic. We can't do this anymore. We're professionals. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And you're not going to mention I'm only in my boxers and an undershirt while I do it? Yeah. And I'm wearing all white. That's strangely unnerving. Hold on. Wait, do you guys need to see all of my body here? <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> First episode of 2024 as we're coming off of our holiday break. And if we want to talk about real life horror, it's an election year, baby. <laughs> oh, God. oh, God. Jesus. <laughs> yep. Didn't even think about that. All right, cool. Well, we're off to a good start. Yay. <laughs> we are going to be talking about the killing of a sacred deer on our first episode of Watch If You Dare Back From The Break. This episode is going to be extra special because we have on first-time guest Nina Jones, host of the podcast Twisted Mirror. Hi, Nina. How are you? Yeah, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be the first episode of the year. Hell yeah. It's a good choice because we've been stewing on this movie for a little while. We were Getting close to doing it ourselves, we're like, there's got to be a guest out there that wants to talk about this movie a lot. Yeah. So this oh, is perfect. You, you, you picked the right person. Yeah. I'm a lover of, of weird shit. I'm very glad you picked this one because this is one that, like I mentioned to you off air, I'd been wanting to do. And it was just kind of an issue of us him and hawing over it. So the fact that you came on and were just like, cool, wave your hand. I'm picking this one. <laughs> yeah. Worked out perfect. So hell yeah, we are going to talk about that. Before we do, though, let's talk about your show. So Twisted Mirror, a fiction and true horror anthology, is a podcast that you have been hosting now for what? Almost? No, it's over a year. It's been like two years now. It's yeah. been two. So it's it's a seasonal format. So I'm in season three right now. Okay. I take a, a summer break because I write most of the stories. So that takes a lot of brain power. I was about to ask you. Yeah. Yeah, because the two episodes I checked out, I think was the one... Actually, from not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before, where was the true crime Santa killer who who went oh, to I think his yeah. ex wife's house and yeah, tried to kill the whole family nuts. and burn down their house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fun. Yeah, and then the other one I checked out was the one that followed, and just hilarious because leading up to Christmas, I was on the phone about USPS about a lost package, 
So I could relate to it. It was the customer relations oh, the, yeah, being replaced was, with AI. Yeah. That one was great with the what happens and the twist of where the AI leads us. Oh, yeah. Shipley. Shipley's my Shipley, girl. Shipley, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we're about to, yeah, two years in. And most of it is fiction. Then occasionally, as you saw, I'll do like a what I call true horror. So either I would say stranger than fiction or just so crazy that I feel like it could be its own horror story, even though it's happened in our world. Basically, it's inspired by like the Twilight Zone. I was a big fan growing up. So the whole premise is these stories come from a world that is much like our own, but you know, just a little bit off. Yeah. So that's where the stories come from. Then occasionally we kind of flip the mirror and examine our own world. And those are the true horror stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At Peek Behind the Curtain, how this collaboration came to be was you were on an episode of True Crime Campfire and we had on Whitney. And then uh, you got in touch with us through networking with them. Because the episode that uh, we talked about on our show with Whitney was that anthology, like three small true crime stories, mm-hmm. and you helped tell the story of them. So I downloaded a bunch of your episodes, but because I'm a dad, I, I the only time I really can listen to podcasts, half the time I can't even do it in my car, or in my car, or at night when everyone's asleep. So I was able to get two of your episodes in. That's why I chose like one true crime and one fictional storytelling. And even with the true crime one, the way you presented it was in such a storytelling way. It still felt like I had to remind myself that this actually happened. And I had to, I looked up the massacre later on because I didn't know much about it. But it was it was just presented in such a way that it felt very much like audio fiction, just well presented. Uh, audio cues are on point. Just a very fun podcast. Yeah, the production design of all of it is very, very top notch. You're doing a great job with all thank that. Thank you. Thank you. There was a learning curve with that because I kind of I'm a writer <laughs> by trade. That's yeah. what I do. And so the tech stuff came and you're you know, it's funny because you're talking about mouth sounds earlier. And that was like the bane of my existence when I started just editing all that stuff and learning my hygiene and that stuff would drive me crazy. And then, you know, it was one of those things I've got to get started, whether or not it's perfect. And then as the show went on, I learned more. And now it's kind yeah. of at a place where people are like, oh, that sounds good. I'm like, thank God. <laughs> Yeah, we've been doing this for, we're going on now, what, year five, Derek? And we're still figuring this out. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it gets better for sure. But yeah, your show is excellent. Thank you. (laughs) It's amazing you guys want to come on and guest because you're continuing the tradition on of having a show that's a way better quality than our POS show. (laughs) Like we're just, no, but uh, but, seriously, thank you for coming on. And one of the things I wanted to ask you too. Have you always had a love for horror? Like, how did you get into true crime horror? What caused you to go into making Twisted Mirror podcasts? Have you always liked horror movies growing up, etc.? Yeah, I think it's twofold. So on the fiction side, my dad and I were really, as I mentioned, into Twilight Zone. Like every New Year's, they'd have that marathon and we would like yeah. watch like 24 hours of Twilight Zone. And I just always admired that storytelling. Things don't always have to be subtle. Sometimes I like the like slap in the face kind of storytelling that you would have on the Twilight Zone. It's just, you know, you've got like 30 minutes to tell a story and sometimes it's allegorical and, but it always kind of gave you food for thought. And I always liked that. Like to me, I can watch gore and not be that moved by it because in my mind it's like, well, you know, this guy like lobbing 50 heads off. It doesn't feel as real to me as the subtle horror where I could actually see that happening in my daily life or being put in a position where I have to make a really tough moral decision where I can't win or, you know, just having some unseen force completely alter my life, you know, in a way that I have to sit with and think about after the show. And then on the other end, 
my mom was really into like Dateline. This was you know, like way before podcasts were even a thought, you know, 2020 and Dateline, right. like the big shows. So we would every week we would sit and watch those. So I was getting it from both ends, the true and the <laughs> fiction. And I've always just kind of liked the macabre. I don't know. I've always been a spooky kid. I've always like strange and weird. And my mind likes to go there. So that's how I just come up with the stories because I'll just be sitting around like, wouldn't it be weird if, and then all of a sudden I'm like, bing, story idea. That's the next thing I know I'm writing an episode based on that. And I actually did have my own UPS issue that informed (laughs) that story. I was so mad. And so sometimes when I'm mad, I'm like, I'm just going to write about it to get it off my chest. Hey, that's great. Kind of like (laughs) fantasize, right? Like it's like almost like a dark fantasy of the dark side of me, what I could do in an alternate world or something like that. So yeah, I've always been into that stuff, but more into, again, like the Alfred Hitchcock. I like, I love Black Mirror, you know, that kind of stuff where it's just horror, psychological, slow burn, that kind of stuff that's right up my alley. Hell yeah. Nice. Yeah. And I think both Aaron and I can relate to the always been a spooky kid that likes the macabre. Yeah. Aaron, I know you watch horror movies way early on. And then I was always into real life ghost stories. And that was my like gateway drug into everything else macabre. So. You're you're in good company here. Yeah, I just I like to be spooked. I don't know. Some people hate it. It's like how people love roller coasters and some people hate roller coasters. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing is to be scared, to be spooked. I don't know. It's just the way my brain is wired. And that's been one of the major premises of the show all these years is me just trying to constantly shake Derek by the shoulders and say, this is going to be fun. Watch this shit. And going like, <laughs> no. Yeah. It, it took you how many years to talk me into haunting of Hill House? From the beginning. From the beginning of this show. <laughs> hey, we need to do this eventually. It's like, oh, it sounds too scary. And now it's like one of the best TV shows I've ever watched in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, Nina, once again, thank you for coming on. I'm, gonna, I'm super excited to talk about this movie, by the way, because again, Lanthimos' stuff is something that I've liked for years now, uh, all of his movies I'm really into. And I have definitely exposed some of our friends to his prior works to, let's just say, varying degrees of tolerance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, I'm definitely excited to talk about this one in a minute. But first, as we usually do, let's talk some recommendations that we have. Uh, So any kind of other horror media, whether it's Movies, TV shows, books, comics, video games, you know, anything else that there is horror-wise that we've been getting into lately. You know, we just got through the holiday season, so I'm sure we might have some holiday recommendations um, or a little bit of hangover. So, Nina, being that you are the guest, you can go first, ma'am. What have you gotten into lately that you want to talk about that is other horror? Sure. So, the first one, I just feel like it was appropriate to mention, which is The Lobster. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been on your own before? No, never. Your last relationship lasted how many years? Twelve. Sexual preference? Women. Any children? No. And the dog? This is my brother. He was here a couple of years ago, but he didn't make it. Good morning. 44 days left. Breakfast is served. As you understand from your brother's experience. If you fail to fall in love with someone during your stay here, you'll turn into an animal. Would you like to dance? Mind if I join you? It's no coincidence that the targets are shaped like single people and not couples. Have you thought of what animal you'd like to be if you end up alone? Yes, a lobster. A lobster is an excellent choice. 
like it's a good recommendation based on the movie we're going to talk about. I do feel like if you enjoyed or whatever word you can use for killing of a sacred deer, <laughs> you know, you want to watch more. I feel like the lobster is a good companion. Yes. Because it has some similarities in style. It's by the same director, but it's completely different in other ways. I think it's actually even stranger in certain ways. I would agree in some ways, yes. It's very yeah. like weird dream logic. Yeah. Things don't make sense. Like, what am I doing? Exactly. Yeah. Colin Farrell's in that one too, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Yep. Leah Seydoux. I mean, there's all kinds of people in that one, yeah. Yeah. And again, the premise itself is, I would say, even weirder than Killing of a Sacred Deer. So if you want to just get like another dose of that strange, that's a good place to go get it. If you can't get enough of that weird, again, dreamlike style, that's a good place to go. Another movie I recently watched that I really enjoyed and I found it was really different and interesting, it's called Swallow. Mm -hmm. And it's on Hulu. How does it make you feel when you swallow something? I just like the textures in my mouth. Textures in my mouth. It made me feel in control. In control. Uh, I'm right here. I just wanted to make you happy. You get back here with my kid! I did something unexpected today. It's body horror, but it's got that subtle... What amazed me is there's so little of the body stuff in a way where you don't see much. There's not gore necessarily, but I still was cringing uh -huh. watching it. Because you get so involved with the main character. And basically the premise, without giving anything away, is this young woman is married into what seems like a fantasy life. She's this beautiful young woman with a husband. And he's obviously comes from a wealthy, well-to-do family. And she's taken care of. But something's up. And she develops pica, which is the premise. And pica is, you know, eating non-food items. It is a very quiet movie in many ways, but it's still really horrific. I think because you just spend a lot of time with the main character alone. She does a really good job of conveying what she's going through, but without much exposition. There's not a lot of, this is how I feel, and this is what I'm going yeah. through. It, you're kind of just sitting in it with her, and there's a cry for help, but she's not crying. But I really enjoyed that movie, and I definitely recommend it. There is definitely a strong- you seen it? I have, yes. Again, similar to like the movie we're going to talk about, there's like a strong sense of alienation and loneliness. I'm never going to be able to relate to this, but you know, there is something about pregnancy that mm -hmm. many, many women have talked about where like you feel isolated, you feel alone, you have that sense of alienation. I mean, you are different. Your body's different. Everything about like how you have to live your life is just suddenly different and you feel trapped in that weird, you know, space of time. You're hosting another being in your body. Like yeah. there's something growing inside of you. And I think there's some themes also, when we're going to talk about killing of sacred deer, of like controlling your environment, yeah. having no control of your circumstances. And, you know, the characters react differently. In her case, she does the one thing I guess she feels that she has any control over or that can make her feel anything. But yeah, it is that sense of an isolation. And, you know, part of you, much like some of the characters in these other movies, like you want to shake her and just say, explain yourself, tell people. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like she's lost, I guess is yeah. a good way to put it. 
And yeah, and even though it moves at a very like gentle pace, it's there's not a lot happening per se. I was very like just glued to the screen to see what was going to happen next. Yeah, it is one of those wild conundrums. So I mean, Pika, like you said, it's eating things that you shouldn't eat, eating non-food items. But in this case, we're talking about eating like thumbtacks, shit mm-hmm. that can kill you, shit that can like mm-hmm. harm you. And this is real. Pika is a real yeah. thing where, yeah. and it's very, very prevalent in pregnant women for some reasons that we don't psychologically, physiologically understand yet. But there are so many cases of pregnant women eating rocks, eating dirt, eating glass, stuff like that, mm-hmm. that there's just like some weird hair. hair. Yeah. Oh, God, that is the worst. Yeah. I remember in nursing school, we were learning about it. And actually, we were learning about it in OB nursing class. Mm-hmm. But uh, the case we were looking at was actually a psychiatric patient, I believe, that they had to literally pump their stomachs because they oh. had eaten so much hair. Yeah. Can't yeah. even fathom getting that down. Like, it seems yeah. impossible, yeah. but yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's one of those wild illness, I guess is the right word, syndrome. A disorder, yeah. yeah. I think it's classified as a eating disorder. Yeah, it's just one of those insane things that, like you said, you want the main character of this movie to explain, like, why are you doing this? What are mm-hmm. you doing? And there is no easy explanation to it. And I think probably a lot of the people that do it, they couldn't tell you either, you know? Yeah. I think what's mysterious about this disorder is, I know there's a the theory that the root cause could be malnutrition. You know, for example, maybe you're not getting enough minerals, mm-hmm. so you start eating dirt and rocks, like your body just doesn't understand how to deal with that. But I think there's also a psychological component, and there's probably varying degrees in each individual yeah. when it comes to this. But yeah, with her, it's like, it's clear that I don't even think she understands what's going on. And so she's just acting out like she's just doing this compulsive behavior as many disordered behaviors are where you haven't even cracked the shell to open up and see what the cause is like she's not even there. She's just I would say for a good portion of it just in denial anyways, of whatever's bugging her without, you know, going too much into the story. And so yeah, I think part of that frustration is probably even you kind of are experiencing what her family or her husband's family, because that's who she's around the most is experiencing. And so it's a weird thing, because you know, you could see them as the villains. And there are aspects where they are villainous, as far as the story goes. But you Mm -hmm. can also kind of see that if you look at it from their perspective, what is wrong with you? You Mm -hmm. have everything you could want. Didn't you want this life? You know, you get taken care of, you don't have to work. Why are you eating? garbage you know yeah. and like dangerous things and you're pregnant well god and there's there's layers to that commentary too because you can just apply that to like mental illness in general like exactly why aren't yeah. you just happy like mm-hmm. that's great uh, this movie sounds wild I, I need to add this to my list oh no it's 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 very good yeah i think even if you're not a fan of horror it's still it's still a movie which most people listening will be here but if you have someone in your life who isn't and you kind of have to drag them into movies this is probably one that you could bring someone into and it, you could couch it more as like a psychological yeah. drama of sorts. Again, most of the cringe is more just thinking about it and sympathizing <laughs> yeah. with what her body must be feeling as she's ingesting this stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, and then the last one, Speak No Evil. Yeah. Yeah, you made it! Hey! <laughs> Sorry for the mess. Oh, it's nothing. It's gonna get much worse. Hi, Abby. I will have some difficulty speaking. He has what you call congenital aglossia, meaning basically he's born without a tongue. <laughs> this is the life. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Ah. Oh. Oh. 
Shit. It's good that we have a doctor in the house. I'm not a doctor. But didn't you say you were a doctor? Did I? Oh, I lied. You lied? I think it's so good to be. One, two, three, four. Things have felt so wrong. Because we do things differently. Why are bang? It truly breaks my heart to hear that you haven't enjoyed your stay. Which there, I just saw that they're gonna remake it. I guess, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I'm like, it just came out and it wasn't English. But anyways, I loved that movie. I also went into it blind. I knew it was one of the strange, dreadful movies to watch. And again, I was enthralled. I watched it two times in a row because, as is the case with a lot of these movies, sometimes I have to watch them twice because the first one you're just trying to like absorb. What am I watching? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like just to get the shape of the movie. And then you watch it a second time and you can actually get all the little details in it that you missed the first time. What I really liked about this movie was just the feeling I had throughout the whole thing. It was just pure dread. I was just like, what is going to happen next? It was was so taut. For my patrons, I did a bonus episode just like doing a recap for them of this movie so they could (laughs) watch it and then they could watch it and then like watch it with my commentary because I had so many things to say. I could do a whole thing on that. I think Aaron brought this up on a past episode, if you remind me. This is the episode where it's a couple are on a trip. It explores that anxiety of just meeting strangers that are maybe a little too forward, a little too exactly. wanting to like be into your yeah. shit, basically. Exactly. And the dynamic, yeah. especially of the couple that's on the trip or the couple that this all ends up centering around. The marriage dynamic, right? Where this husband, he's yep. kind of in a rut. You can kind of tell. He's going through the motions of life and he meets this guy who just comes off as larger than life. It starts where they're in, they're in Tuscany at some sort of bed and breakfast. So everyone's having dinner together and he gets up and he does this big toast and he's got this big personality and you can just see that the other guy's just in awe, you know, of wow, this guy just, he just takes up a room. It seems like he just wants to kind of like be this guy and wants to get his approval. Mm -hmm. And so he disregards a lot of his wife's gut instincts about things to defer to this guy, to not look lame, you know, and that's just one aspect of it. But yeah, I think it's, it's a great study in boundaries or what people following their gut or, you know, social norms. I mean, I know that the premise or it was written about, you know, like the concept, I don't know enough about this personally living in the US, but. Danish society and how it's very safe and how the Danish middle class life is pretty safe. You have it pretty good that it may make you naive to certain dangers and what lurks out in the world, you know, that kind of thing. But I just really was enthralled by it. And I know people get angry as they watch that stuff, but I like to (laughs) see characters who kind of define something. So like, this one guy that was like, he's really ostentatious and he's really bold and he's not afraid to get in your face and make you uncomfortable. And then there's the other guy who's the complete opposite of that. And I like that they're really defined like that. You kept wanting the passive guy to make a stand. But then when I thought back, I'm like, why was I expecting that from him? He's just not that guy, right? 
<laughs> we all like to think we're going to be the person who does the brave thing in the movies, but many times when it comes to it, we don't for whatever reason. It could be fear. It could be just feeling like you're going to overreact or make it worse. And so it's like, why would I expect the guy who's proven himself to be kind of a coward to suddenly be some badass, you know? But that's what we come to expect in movies. So I think, think a lot of people were upset that he didn't step up earlier yeah, or whatever. But yeah, I love to watch awkward things too. Like I love a good awkward dinner scene, that uh-huh. kind of stuff. And this movie's full of those <laughs> moments. Like I love to watch other people in misery or being like awkward. Yeah. One of the things I like about horror, I always say is, when the pandemic first started, I was watching a lot more horror and miserable stuff. And, it, and people were like, wouldn't you want to watch like happy things? And I'm like, no, I want to watch people more miserable than me. I feel better <laughs> about my life watching people on the screen suffer. It's my feel good mo- stuff is horror. Speak No Evil is one that I liked the vibes. I got the vibes of it when I watched it. There was just something that I wasn't connecting with. Mm-hmm. Gave it a wait. Went back and rewatched it several weeks back. and had like a hard turn on, okay, now I get what this is doing now that I'm going back and revisiting this. There was also some stuff that I kind of read up on, like you said, some of those cultural things about Dutch and Danish culture and how there are some differences there that don't translate. You know, some of it's obvious surface level stuff, but then there's some deeper stuff that I didn't consider because I don't know what I'm looking at, right? Yeah. So learning about some more of that was interesting. But yeah, it's it's an extremely uncomfortable movie. Aside from like the actual horrific shit that it goes to by the end, it's just fucking uncomfortable to like staying at somebody's house that you barely know and you're in the shower and somebody oh comes in the bathroom while yeah. you're in the shower and like you know, uses a toilet, brushes their teeth, and acts like nothing ever happened, and that's just okay and fine. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it's funny, because I watched it with my husband, who's not as into horror, so I'm constantly having to drag him into stuff. He's actually the squeamish one, like, just yeah. a little cut. He'll be like, ugh. I asked him, like, when do you think you would have left? And he was like, pretty much when they didn't accept that she didn't want to eat meat. Yeah. I would have already been like, yeah, we're going to try to leave tomorrow morning. Like, we're going to find our way out. And I believe him because I know him well and I know he's very particular about you know <laughs> certain things and just no one's going to like not respect what my wife puts in her body. You know what I mean? If yeah. you say you don't like meat, you don't keep trying to force someone to eat meat, you know, as a guest. And so it's just interesting. I was laughing because that was like one of like 20 slights <laughs> before they were even like, yeah. hmm, this is weird. Or before the husband even said anything, where would you personally draw the line in the many slights because they were really well-written slights was what I liked. They were right on the line of maybe I'm overreacting if I, in this one instance, get super offended or leave. Yeah. They were just right on the line, but it's the cumulative effect. And I think watching it back is also when you see it more because again, now you're like, you know what to expect and you start to more clearly see the plan, you know, the whole thing rolling Uh in the constant tests, right? Because it's obviously like he's testing them to see are these the type of people that I can do what I'm about to do yeah. to them? He says that line at the end where he's like, you know, why are you doing this? And he's like, I think it's like, it's because you let me or I think that's what he says. But it's basically like, <laughs> I've been doing this to you the whole time in just small ways incrementally. And you never stood up for yourself. So yeah. here we are. Oh, hell, Nina, you can sell a movie. I want to watch all three <laughs> of these. now. And, the, and they all three like all three of these recommendations pair well in some ways, it seems like with 
killing of a sacred deer, which is something that yeah. uh, has never happened on our show where a guest has done that. Oh, well, <laughs> I have a particular taste. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. All right, Derek, what have you got for us? Cool. I got uh, three recommendations. I got a movie and then two uh, comic-related recommendations. I'll start with the movie, and we're going to come back to this a little bit with Killing of a Sacred Deer, but, and I've said this on the show before, I don't like the terminology of elevated horror. I think horror is horror, and there are just subgenres of horror, but otherwise horror is horror, and all horror is important. They're all my children, <laughs> but I'm about to kind of, yes, but that whole idea with this first movie uh, recommendation. So my first recommendation is called The Evil from 1978, okay. directed by Gus. Traconis. Nobody ever suspected what ancient terror slept beneath the Vargas house. Stories get started about any old house that's been vacant for a while. What kind of stories? Oh, just the stories. Just old wives' tales. Look out! Terror that turns laughter into screams. Loving pets into killers. For the house belongs to the evil. It was also known as Cry Demon and House of Evil. So yeah, where I'm kind of going to contradict myself, this feels very much like a Sunday afternoon in the background kind of horror movie to have all fold clothes or do something like that. It is fun it is totally competent fine movie nothing great about it nothing bad about it it's just a fun horror movie it's a fun straightforward the deepest it gets is good versus evil almost in a too biblical way a haunted house movie but basically it follows the psychiatrist i think a pair of psychiatrists like a husband wife team they discover this mansion that's been abandoned by an old civil war general that was built over hot sulfur pits and for some reason, this house has just been sitting there abandoned. Has a very actually house on Haunted Hill setup, kind of. The husband decides he wants to buy this abandoned mansion and turn it into like a drug rehab facility or a psychiatric facility. So when I saw the initial premise of this on Tubi, because this was on my wish list on Tubi for a while now, I was like, fuck yeah, a haunted psychiatric treatment center with ghosts and a Civil War general ghost and all that. I'm in. <laughs> and then. It really wasn't that. It was more just them and their friends, almost Friday the 13th style, showing up to like fix up the mansion and then the mansion fucking their worlds up. And as soon as they get in there, the wife starts experiencing weird shit. She starts seeing ghostly apparitions like no one's believing her, of course. And they skim over the idea of having these discussions kind of in the way that you just brought up, Nina, with where would be the moment where you finally like can admit, okay, this is yeah. supernatural. Where's the line of fucked up weird things happening with no explanation yeah. before we leave? Yeah, Because yeah. like they're all vehemently different levels of skeptics, which is fine. You know, they're doctors and doctorate students, et cetera, et cetera. But again, there's a lot of ignoring the wife who even when like <laughs> shit is going down, this is a bad idea. Like you should listen to her. You don't know for a little while, like if this is the Civil War general doing this or if the house is just evil. Well, I'm not giving anything away pretty fucking quickly on in the movie. You find out that there is some kind of evil trapped under the house. It was built on fucking sulfur pits. Yeah. You could put two and two together <laughs> yeah. like yeah. it's a portal to hell. Yeah. This movie uh, oddly had a very similar, at least plot set up to like the Sentinel. 
it's interesting that this movie came out in 1978 in between the start of the slasher renaissance post texas chainsaw and black christmas either this is the same year or right after halloween this was right in the boom of the exorcist and the Omen the exorcist yeah supernatural yeah. stuff happening like this was right in that period before slashers really started going back to what you said nina and granted there's some pretty gnarly kills or at least the implications of what happens to some of these people is pretty gnarly but it still felt almost twilight zone-esque it didn't feel nearly as transgressive or like extreme as something like the exorcist which predates this movie by a chunk of years um it almost felt like a made for tv horror movie in some ways where they kind of toned down what they could have gotten away with that's actually where i think it's hindered is i kind of wish this movie was a little more like trash transgressive in certain areas but it was still a fun movie it's still a fun movie to watch the final confrontation which i won't give it away but like the final confrontation right at the climax is actually pretty fun but it's also kind of ridiculous and that whole scene feels like a twilight zone episode it almost feels like its own mini movie in the middle of this movie and i'm sure that the person that they have portraying a certain character is also like a cameo of a famous old-fashioned comedian or, or performer from old Hollywood or something, but I didn't look that up. But yeah, it's a fun movie. If you want to watch Good vs. Evil, The Devil, Demonic Shit, you could do worse than The Evil. It's fun. It's also very low-budget, and it doesn't seem like a low-budget movie, which is impressive. Aaron, have you seen this movie? Years ago. It's, it's one that, I'll be honest, it didn't make that much of an impression on me at the time, so yeah. I haven't revisited yeah. it since. But yeah, I, I saw this years ago. Yeah, it almost feels like the better version of this movie is The Changeling, or the better version of this movie from the demonic standpoint is The Exorcist. So it is kind of hard to like say, like, oh, well, you should put this on if you haven't seen those. No, like, go watch the better ones first. But if you're a horror completionist and you're always looking for a new thing to watch and you didn't know about this, absolutely go watch this movie. It's not a bad movie. It's it's fun. Yeah, it's to your point. I mean, it's not bad. It is just very generic. Even for that yeah. time, it is still so heavy on tropes by that point that it just kind of fizzles out and feels a little bit forgettable, yeah. And you could say it's like an Exorcist or Omen clone, but even that doesn't feel right because it's so different in many ways from those movies. So I don't really know what this was trying to no, be. I meant more just like it's writing that vibe. It was very much just yeah. in the vein of supernatural horrors in right now, so that's what we're rolling with. Yeah, so there you go, The Evil from 1978. Second thing, I'll be a little quick with this one because it's retreading some ground. I picked up a hardcover collection called Tombs Junji Ito Story Collection. Okay. It has the feature Tomb Town story that was actually part of the Netflix adaptation uh, a little while ago, the story where anytime someone dies, the town leaves their body alone and it turns into a literal tomb wherever they drop dead. It was fun to watch it. The adaptation on Netflix is actually really faithful. I think the only thing that was different were certain details with the ending. Otherwise, it was pretty much the same. There's other stories that I remember popped up in this one that were on the Netflix adaptation. Like the other one I can think of is the tunnel with the ghosts and the radiation. Oh, yeah. Is in this yeah, collection. Yeah. There's one that was kind of body horror in that weird Judito way of a girl's tongue literally transforms into a slug. Oh, my God. And it's how they try and figure like how to get rid of it. They're trying everything from like cutting it out to sprinkling salt on it to this and that. And it just keeps going worse and worse and worse. There's another story that I thought was pretty fun where a family moves into a new house and across 
the alley that's in between their house and another what seems like an abandoned building is one lone window. The teenage boy of the family stays in the room that has the window right across from his. And there's some grotesque creature almost masquerading as like a grandmother who lives next door and is trying to like get the boy to come over and all that. You know, just other more nightmare shit from Jujito <laughs> that you, if you want to like see some of the like craziest, creepiest and disgusting artwork from any comic artist, manga artist, etc. Yeah, he's always good for that, at least. Um, but yeah, Tombtown, again, Junji Ito story collection. Support your local bookstore. Have them try and order it, of course, but it is readily available on the other big market stuff, too. Last thing I wanted to shout out was another graphic novel collection. It is called The DC Universe by Neil Gaiman, the deluxe edition. It is a collection of single-issue stories that Neil Gaiman has told over the years for DC Comics, including like stories with Green Lantern, Superman, Batman. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is this one's maybe a little more horror-adjacent, but Neil Gaiman, if anyone who's not familiar with him, they should be by now. American Gods, Sandman, those shows were extremely popular. That's all based off of his work. He has always operated in fantasy horror, especially fantasy horror steeped in the supernatural and in folklore of religion around the world. The Sandman is just as much a horror collection as it is fantasy. There's a lot of horror in this because like his Poison Ivy story very much feels like a true crime. Poison Ivy is not just dangerous because of her powers. She is legitimately can fuck with the heads of mostly men, really, but anyone. And she can literally get under their skin and you're not quite sure if that's her powers at work or it's just the way she is and just mentally messing with them. And it's a very fun story exploring that and it goes into her origins and all that probably the best story and the most well-known one in this collection is the whatever happened to the cape crusader i've heard of that one yeah the final batman story for any version of batman you want it is batman basically having a near-death experience and seeing his own funeral but the funeral is very metaphysical like out of time all the villains and all the allies are at this funeral, like giving their different stories, and each story is a different way of how he died. And it basically is an exploration as to there is no heaven or hell for Batman. There is only like he gets to be Batman again. And it can be like an ending for any Batman, anytime, any place. That's probably his most fantastical and supernatural idea of death and like a life review at a near death experience. There's a fun story with the Green Lantern and Superman where they do for a brief moment. They also have a near-death experience and they meet Dead Man and accidentally like go to hell for a little while. And it's fucking horrifying for Superman because he could see much further than the human eye of all of hell. So like almost psychologically breaks him. <laughs> Probably actually what my personal favorite story was a series of short stories about different Batman villains. But it's this like news team that comes to Gotham that wants to like show the human side, quote-unquote, of the Batman rogues gallery. And, of course, that goes sideways because they're all evil. Sure. But the short story involving the Riddler is actually fantastic because he's extremely nutty and dangerous, but at the same time, he's super tragic because he's like, I thought this was a game. I thought we were having fun. But now, like, the Joker is killing people and Two-Face is killing people. It was supposed to be just about having fun and committing crimes and, like, fighting Batman and trying to outsmart him. It's like this weird linchpin between the Bronze Age, Silver Age into the modern age of like Grimdark, whereas the Riddler's almost portrayed as like this old supervillain who's 
emotionally broken because the game has evolved to like this dark place that he's not ready for, but some part of him might be. So it's an interesting exploration of super villainy from just a person who literally just puts on a costume with question marks and says riddles and that's his whole gimmick like he's a wrestler he's like i just wanted to tell riddles Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah so again that one's called the dc universe by neil gaiman specifically the deluxe edition again you can find it i think you can actually find it on dc.com or at least dc.com can direct you to your local comic shop i highly recommend you go through your local comic shop if they don't have it ask them to order it for you and they will most comic shops can do that for you so please go support your local bookstores local comic shops but yeah that's all i got aaron cool i'll be quick with mine so we can go ahead and get started talking about the movie a little bit of hangover from our last episode where we discussed el dia de la bestia aka day of the beast for our christmas episode with andrew i got the itch to jump back into some other alex de la iglesia stuff so i rewatched. Las Brujas de Zugara Murdi, a.k.a. Witching and Bitching from 2013. Lots of fun. It's a ridiculous, super fun movie. Going back and watching it now, especially, okay, I know a little bit more about Alex de la Iglesia himself. He was going through a divorce. So this movie, uh... That has a lot of satire, a lot of battle of the sexes kind of commentary. It's very angry. It's a very uh, women are the worst and guys are the worst kind of movie. It's very much just like a everybody's fucking terrible movie. It's his The Brood, basically. <laughs> uh, kind of, yeah. It's very much, you know what sucks? Marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and all three of us are married right now. <laughs> yeah. It is a group of guys who rob a traded your gold for cash kind of place in Madrid. They escape out into the countryside and end up in this weird little town that is known for being like one of the historical spots. Let's say it's like their Salem in Spain. It's one of the spots where there was a lot of historical witchcraft activity that happened. There was a big, you know, witch trial that happened there hundreds of years before. So they end up in this kind of fucked up cursed place and uh, discover like, oh, yeah, there's still witches everywhere. It goes to some fucking ridiculous Looney Tunes slapstick places, but (laughs) in that very fucked up, dark, sacrilegious and gross out Alex de la Iglesia kind of way. I was laughing my ass off through it. Just how ridiculous it gets. The ending of it is so big and ambitious for how it starts off. It starts with just a regular daylight bank robbery in downtown Madrid and ends with a witch's black mass in a giant cave with witches flying through the air, a human sacrifice that's about to happen, and giant shit kind of goes from there. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. 
it's buck wild. It's hilarious. Going back and watching it, it is a fun mix of actors and actresses that were in a lot of his earlier movies, like uh, Segura, the guy that plays the metalhead in El Dia de la Bestia, except in this movie, he is in full fucking drag. And he is one of the witches in this town, but it's clear that he is a man in drag who has kind of thrown in with the witches. Wait, do they like tolerate him? They let him like stay Oh, there? absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. They're inclusive witches. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They may commit human sacrifice, but they are inclusive. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's people like Macarena Gomez, who's in 30 Coins, right? So there's this interesting yep. mix of newer era actors from all of his stuff and older era actors like kind of all mashing together in this his wife Carolina Bong is in this this wasn't the first movie that they worked together on but this was one of the things that she was featured in wait the wife that he was divorcing no the wife that he met making an earlier movie and divorced his other wife from I mean their marriage was broken so it wasn't super salacious from what I read um, it was gotcha. more just like things didn't work out and, you know, he met this other woman. But uh, anyway, yeah, that movie's super fun. It's on Tubi. You can watch it for free. Would definitely recommend if you want to watch something that's comedic, horror, ridiculous, over the top gory. And then the other thing I'll mention is I caught back up with Alex De La Iglesia's HBO Europe. It is on Max show 30 Coins. What happened that day of October in Pedraza? Hubo un ritual satánico. ¿Qué pasó que os dio tanto miedo? Margaret, por primera vez me enfrento a alguien nuevo. Christian Barbro. The only way to know the exact date and time of the end of the world is to provoke it ourselves. Hay bisogno de me. But I'm offering you is the opportunity to start from scratch in a new world. I don't want to seem arrogant, but I would love to show you what I'm capable of. This was a show that I have definitely brought up in the past. I watched this during the pandemic. That's how long it's been since there was a season of this show. For those who don't want to go that far back and figure out what episode that was, the general premise of the show is the silver coins that Judas got for betraying Christ are cursed as fuck, (laughs) objects of dark power, and there is a weird subsect of the Catholic Church world power Illuminati called the Canaanites that are seeking out all these coins that have been scattered across the world over the course of history. And they're trying to get them all back together as a means of having ultimate power, right? And they want to, like, overthrow the world and Christian church and all of this, right? So it's kind of centered around, like, this small town of people and how one of the coins ends up there and just turns everything upside down. Really fun, ridiculous show. Lots of fun practical effects and gore and creature design stuff. Really cool lore. It's interesting going out because I rewatched all of season one. It's only eight episodes. I just blew through season one again because it's been, again, four years since season one came out. But it's fun how much of the general ideas 
of Day of the Beast bled over into this show, that God and the devil are essentially two sides of the same coin. There is very much the, like, one can't exist without the other, you can't have good without evil. If God is all-powerful, why does he allow the devil and evil to persist? Well, it's all this giant conundrum of you have to have both in order for human beings to truly be free and have free will and make our own choices, etc. So it's interesting like how much of that philosophical shit is, you know, kind of bled over into this show as well. But again, a show where like they're having a black mass and there's dead goats everywhere and a woman births a monstrosity that turns into like a weird spider baby, just all kinds of crazy shit. So the new season that just came out, just finished up, even more absurd, even more gory, even more comedic than the first season. And it very much deals with all the fallout from the season one finale. There are two major cast additions this season. Najwa Nimri, who is in Abre Los Ojos, which is the original version of Vanilla Sky, right? The American remake of that movie. And Sex and Lucia. So she's like a fairly major Spanish actress that joined this season as a podcaster or a YouTube video person, rather, who like explores creepy, spooky shit. So she's looking into like, the events of the first season, and she gets tied up into the story. Does it do the new newer horror trope? Because we're seeing that now in, in a lot of horror stuff, like podcasters and things, and they usually get their shit wrecked. Does that continue the tradition? <laughs> Let's just say in the first scene with her in the first episode, her like partner technical guy gets his shit wrecked bad. Oh, well, yeah, of course. At least someone had so, yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. 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 That made me laugh about like Halloween 2018 or 2019, the David Gordon Green, the podcasters that at the, the beginning. the podcasters immediately just, get fucked, yeah. Yeah, yeah of, of course. course. I don't blame them, to be honest. <laughs> It'd be an honor. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Myers, I was like, oh, he's going to shit wreck them immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other major cast addition to this season of this show is fucking Paul Giamatti? What? I yeah. saw him and I was like, am I seeing things? Because I saw uh-huh. him on Max on the graphic and I'm like, this is an interesting casting for the show. Yeah. And it's wild that it's coming out now because he has the holdovers in theaters where like they're talking about fucking, you know, an, another Oscar nomination for him. And he is in this show having a fucking blast playing the most, again, Illuminati, evil, psycho billionaire, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, but also with L. Ron Hubbard. He is like the leader of this new age think cult, and he like lives on yachts that travel around the world, and he has all these self-published weirdo books. So what Jared Leto is going to be in like 20 years. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> but he is now trying to like gather up all the coins. I could not have fucking guessed where this was going to go ultimately from where it starts. And I say that in like the most baffling, delighted, like I, what only Iglesia like could have come up with this whole fucking crazy ending and how things tied up, but it's epic and it's ridiculous and it's massive apocalypse, Lovecraftian, holy shit, cosmic horror, ridiculous. Some highlights of this season. There's major chunks of the season that are literally set in hell. So seeing like this weird vision of hell where everything is these nightmare labyrinth, just room after room, hallway after hallway, like Baroque palace mansion, but in hell. So they're just covered with gore and shit and chains and body parts. And there's 
crazy Cenobite creatures running around, cutting people in half. It is the most Silent Hill pyramid head meets pinhead kind of bullshit. (laughs) It's great. If you've ever been terrified of a giant 10-foot-tall demon with BDSM gear on just ripping (laughs) people in half, that's what hell is like in this show. I think my only real complaint is for as insular as season one was where it's all set in this one village and it feels claustrophobic and it feels a little bit weird that all this stuff is happening in this one specific small village in spain season two is we're gonna bounce all over the fucking world and we're gonna go seemingly in an afternoon we're gonna somehow go from like spain to france to the vatican and then back to spain again and i get that europe is a small place and i get that you can like hop on trains and be in a different country in an hour, right? Some of the hopping around becomes a little bit ridiculous to the point where you're like, wait, where are we now? What characters are we following? How did they get from here to here in this amount of time? And that's a little bit odd. I think you can just let that go because it is one of those extraneous, like if you think about it too much, it falls apart details that is not necessary. Again, in a show where we're talking about cursed objects and literal characters going to fucking hell and sending cursed fucking keys from hell into the real world by, again, impregnating somebody with like a spider monster. Just that kind of shit. So anyway, it's fun. It's a blast. If you have Max, definitely check it out. Again, two seasons. They're eight episodes each. It's easy to get through. Absolutely ridiculous shit. I would definitely recommend it. Paul Giamatti is an evil fucker. Sounds amazing. Oh, and he, again, he is having a fucking blast in this show. Because A, it's like, oh, you got to be in a show where you probably filmed for two weeks. And you got to be on yachts in Europe. And go to all these crazy exotic locations. And just got to, like, wear nice clothes and drink fancy wine. And be on fucking yachts and planes and shit. Playing this millionaire asshole. He probably had a blast sacrificing henchmen for getting his drink order wrong. That's exactly the kind of shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He has these like little clay figurines of people that he makes that he can like control and manipulate. So it's definitely a lot of just snapping those in half and watching somebody like literally break in half and fall apart. Wild shit. So yeah, I very much enjoyed it. Hopefully season three will happen sooner rather than later. Four years was kind of a wild wait uh, for a second season of this show that left you hanging so fucking hard. This show doesn't leave you hanging with the second season, thankfully. Like, if it ends here, it ends. But it is also perfectly set up for another season that will take things into a completely different dynamic and a completely different direction and flip everything upside down. So, like, it's perfectly set up for another season, but if they don't have another season, it, it'll be fun. Yeah, it's not like Archive 81. Jesus where, Christ. Like, yeah. I'm left hanging on, like, the biggest fucking cliffhanger. Yeah. God, I'm so mad that you recommended that one to me. <laughs> like, because I got so into it, and now I'll never know what happens. I mean, you could listen to the podcast, because the podcast does finish the story, but... Yeah, I guess yeah, so. Yeah, the Netflix show, never to be again, unfortunately. Although it'd be cool if Shudder or somebody picked it up. I don't see why not. I don't think Netflix made that show. I think it was picked up by Netflix. So maybe Shudder can pick it up. I don't know. We'll see. Can't trust these shows anymore. They keep canceling them on us. I I know. Archive 81, like Aaron was like, it's everything you like. It's a great horror show. Go watch it. So I watched it and I binge it in two days. I was like, 
blew me away. I was like, one season two canceled. This oh is my like, god, I'm still not over. I was talking about the other day about Mine Hunter. I'm still like upset about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that was one that I kind of saw the writing on the wall before the second season ended. That like, oh god, this is not gonna. Mm, this is gonna be over. They're gonna cancel it. And of course, they like just recently officially said like, yeah, this show's fucking done. It had been kind of a foregone conclusion at that point. But yeah, with Archive 81, it was kind of hilarious because Derek messaged me and was like, oh, I finished the show. It's so fucking cool. And literally the next day, Netflix was like, we're canceling this shit. (laughs) And like season one ends on a big cliffhanger, too. Oh, that hurts. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks. And I I looked up the podcast. I mean, you're right. The podcast continues past. But even like the first season, which is based off of the first season of the podcast, the first season of the podcast and the first season of the show are very different from many ways. Yeah. Plot wise, like the show is almost like its own thing. So, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I have heard. Oh, well, guess we'll never know. So, all right, cool. Well, let's jump into talking about our movie for this episode. We, we don't have to worry about nothing because we got the fire and we're burning one hell of a something. They, they're going to see us from outer space. Yeah, I'm really sorry outer about Bob. It's nothing serious. No, it is. Like we're the stars of the human race, human race. Where did you two go? When the lights started out, they don't know what they heard. Check the match, playing loud, giving love to the world. How did his father die? A surgeon never kills a patient. An anesthesiologist can kill a patient, but a surgeon never can. Cause we got the fire, fire, Don't be scared, Mom. You'll see. You won't be able to move either. So get used to it. Where is she? What did you do to her? We're gonna let it burn. I don't understand why I should have to pay the price. Why my children should have to pay the price. It's the only thing I can think of as close to justice. We can let it up. So they can put it out, out, out. So, Nina, thank you again for bringing this movie into our show, because this is a movie that from the time that I saw, I was like, holy shit, this is wild. This gives me such an insane, dripping sense of dread. And yet, what the fuck am I looking at in this movie? I'm very glad that you brought this up. So let's start there. What about this movie specifically? inspired you to like bring this up as something that you wanted to talk about how did you first see this movie tell us your spiel for this okay so well i think it's pretty clear i like the strange like i just like strange things so when it first came out i saw the preview and i was like oh i gotta see this just gut feeling i think some of my friends and like the horror circles were sharing it I love how weird it is. I love the stilted, strange language, the way the characters mm-hmm. speak. The way I describe it is as if aliens studied humans for a while. <laughs> and then they're like, let's make a movie for humans that they will like. And let's show yes. their conversations and how they speak to each other about watches. Holy shit, Nita. I wrote this down as a note. I said, it's as if they took maybe two aliens and four yes. automatrons yes. told them to make a Greek tragedy, but yes. also make it modern day. 
and also make it kind of daytime soapy drama? Yeah. Question mark? Yeah. Almost like you fed it through chat GPT, too. Yeah. Like, that's really what <laughs> exactly. it feels like. You know, the visuals are really cool. I feel like they add to the dread. There's a lot of these long shots. It's almost like an uncanny valley world we're watching. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, there are movies that you watch just for the plot, you know, to get me through this story, beginning, middle, end. And then there are movies that you kind of watch because of the feeling they give you. And I think this is one of those movies. Like, on its face, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense, right? What Martin ends up doing to them, if you think this is our world and the way it operates, that is not how things happen here. You couldn't just decide that you're going to mete out justice in this way. So you kind of just let go, or I let go of that. And I just, especially watching it for the first time, it's just like I'm on this ride and it's weird and it's tense and I have no idea where it's going, but I know it's not going to go to a good place. And I like that feeling. Again, I like being spooked. And I think it's a good movie for discussion because it doesn't just feed you everything. So, you know, you mentioned the Greek tragedy. Before I got on here, I started like looking up what people thought of the movie. And I think a lot of people miss the whole Greek myth aspect of it where Kim, the daughter- Which is wild. Yeah, yeah. she mentions it. It's like it's literally thrown in there like, in case you missed yeah. it, here's the name. Iphigenia, the tragedy of, of, or the myth of that. I mean, it's literally in the title, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. So part of, I think, the thing that maybe angers people about the movie is that things don't make sense to them. But when you often read a Greek myth, it makes very little sense. You know, like, a god will just decide that they're pissed at someone for some minor infraction and then wreak havoc on their lives. Or yeah. be like, I'm taking your daughter now because I said so and that makes sense as a god. And like, like there's parables and stuff in it, but sometimes the logic isn't really perfect in the myth. So if you accept that and you accept this as a retelling of a Greek myth, it has the similar logic of a myth. Wasn't it David or someone who got asked, kill your son for me to prove that you love me? Dude was going to straight Abraham. up. Yeah, Abraham. Abraham. Yeah. Abraham. And he's like, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he was going to do it. But God sent an angel to God's literally like, stop kidding. his hand right <laughs> yeah. when the knife was about to enter the chest. I just want to see if you would do it for me, you know? But yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the gods, they'll come down, they see a sexy lady, and they'll impregnate her. They just do what they That's want. That's how you so get a minotaur. <laughs> exactly. And if you kind of look at Martin that way, he makes a lot more sense. He's almost like. Yeah a god coming into their world and he decides what justice is he can make things happen he could be half god like if you wanted to yeah. even take that literal like greek tragedy approach his father was actually a greek god and this is why and yes. i don't think any of this matters it's just fun fan theory but yeah. you could take it as he is a demigod and that's why he can do this yeah and i maybe probably should say the myth for people listening which is King Agamemnon was on his way to Troy, and he killed a sacred stag that belonged to, I believe it was Artemis, or was it Athena? I think it was Artemis, Artemis. She's a warrior goddess. She was really pissed. She was offended. And she demanded that his daughter, Iphigenia, be sacrificed. Yeah. There's different ways it ends. The most tragic way is that he says, oh, I'm going to marry you off, and she thinks she's going to be married. And then at the altar, she doesn't even know what's happening. She gets sacrificed. And then other versions, Artemis just decides, okay, that's enough. A lot of these myths are the same thing, right? So she kind of just decides, like God did to Abraham, oh, that's enough. You've proven your point. I'm going to put a deer in place of your daughter and we'll sacrifice that deer. So killing of a sacred deer, right? I mean, it's right in the title. Another take that I read that actually 
comes into play as almost like a reversal in this movie, but like it never comes, is that he actually last minute is able to trick Artemis by slipping in a deer and slipping his daughter out from underneath sacrificial like gown. And then they sacrifice it and it's actually a deer and Artemis thinks it's yeah. his daughter's. You're right. There's multiple versions of the of the myth and multiple endings. And that just proves my point of how these myths make no sense because this all-knowing Artemis who could stop your ships from sailing to Troy and control you wouldn't know that your daughter is not a deer. You know what I mean? But yeah. like, wouldn't, yep. wouldn't notice that you slipped in a deer. But that's how myths work. They're just strange. They don't follow our worldly logic. But yeah, I think... There's many levels to why I enjoy this, and that that's kind of why I picked it. I, it just has a lot of fun things to talk about, I think. Yeah, because this is kind of in the camp of what we saw probably from like 2013, 2014 and on with the rise of like art house horror that kind of came out of indie horror and the A24 horror, which sometimes rightfully so is made fun of for being like over stylized or like making no sense on purpose. You could argue like that this is in that camp. However, I make the counter argument that this movie isn't trying to hide anything. It's trying to tell you exactly what it thinks it's doing. It is a loose modern retelling of that Greek myth to the point where like the daughter talked about her paper about the Greek myth this mm-hmm. movie is riffing on. And the movie, I think, is just being straight up like, no, it's that myth, but it's a little bit different in the ending. It's more of almost, and this might be just me, this might be my own fucked up sensibilities. This movie almost was more of a dark comedy to me oh, yes. than it was a horror yes, movie. It's so funny. Absolutely. <laughs> it is. In the same way that David Lynch will include weird shit in like Twin Peaks or like any of his movies that only he finds funny and it's just strange to the mm-hmm. viewer. I think that this whole movie was like Lanthimos doing the same thing. I think it's just his sense of humor also mixed in with all this stuff that he's saying about power dynamics. Wouldn't it be scary if you're an accomplished, powerful adult man? Like, not just an adult man, but you're a surgeon. You're a heart surgeon. Like, you are top class, top of society. And here's this weird 15, 16-year-old who obviously has psychological problems, and they're fucking you over out of revenge, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And that thought is terrifying Mm -hmm. that a child or a teenager can hold that over you as an adult, there's literally nothing you can do. And like, there's no easy way out. You have to pick a fucked up choice and whatever choice you make is not going to benefit you at all. That's what the movie is trying to explore, I think, and play around with. And I don't think there's any deeper meaning. Like we could argue because Aaron and I, we just recently, like not recently, but within the last several months, we did Neon Demon, which is also in that whole art house, over stylized, weird dialogue delivery thing of horror. And while I enjoyed it, Go back and listen to the episode because we had two guests on and all our opinions ranged from this is one of my favorite horror movies to I fucking hate this movie. <laughs> and like me and Aaron were kind of in between. I think that movie is trying a little too hard to have deeper meanings to it. Be like, look at me, I'm important. Whereas I think the killing of sacred deer doesn't give a shit what you think about it. If you meet the movie on its terms, there's a lot there for you to unpack and enjoy. But at the same time, I don't think it's trying to have some deeper meaning off of what's being shown and stated and the basic premise of the movie. I'll be the balance to that because I do feel like there is a little bit more going on under the surface. You kind of already got to this point, but Lanthimos as a filmmaker engages audiences in a way that I enjoy in that there are no easy answers. There are no clear statements, but there is very specific decision-making. There's very specific 
iconography. There's very purposeful bleakness and monotony and absurdity to his work that is not accidental. It had like an almost waiting for Godot kind of feel to it in many scenes. And I get that a lot of people don't like this level of cinematic Rorschach introspection, right? Because they just see it as a filmmaker who has no story to tell, or the filmmaker has no point of view, or there's no intentionality there, right? They like blame that as a fault on the like creativity, you know, and thankfully the art of cinema is fundamentally about more than like just the storytelling aspect. It's about how it makes you feel. We've talked about this with Lynch before. So much of what this movie is doing is engaging with your emotional state, and it is putting you in a place of dread and uncomfortability. Cringe. Mm-hmm. Cringe, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, much as we kind of overuse that term nowadays for a lot of things. I think it's appropriate here. Yeah. It's very apt for this, right? You know, I think there is a lot more going on here in terms of, again, like I mentioned earlier when we talking about Swallow, there's a lot about loneliness and alienation and juxtaposing those ideas against, you know, visual indicators like sunlight and empty spaces. And the music, right? Like, there's Mm -hmm. no score to this movie. It's all classical or, like, you know, modern experimental classical kind of stuff. But it's all things that induce this sense of unease. And to me, I feel like being drugged through that emotional ringer and being able to feel something from that is also worth exploring, not just for the story that the movie is telling, but how it makes you feel. Because there are plenty of movies that tell a great story, and then you feel fucking nothing watching it, right? Mm -hmm. There's something to be said about a piece of art that legitimately makes you react, and I feel like that is still worthwhile. Like, I'm glad you brought that up, because weirdly enough, despite the way this movie ends and despite me being a father now and we brought up time and time again how that like has changed my outlook on the way children are treated in movies mm-hmm. etc but i didn't feel bad after watching this movie like it didn't feel like it put me through an emotional ringer where i came out of it exhausted and just feeling like the world is awful like because again i think it was in such that weird liminal other world liminal is a good word for it yeah yeah like this feels like it almost took place in the other side of the back rooms like. and there's a lot of hallways and it's yeah. funny it's actually because aaron mentioned the lighting it's actually a really bright movie yeah 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 very and, you know you don't associate horror with so much light but a lot of it's the hospital very scenes, sterile yeah everything's yeah. very sterile and there's a lot of light and yet it still gives you a different type of feeling of discomfort like the feeling of sitting in a hospital room alone. Yeah, in the middle in of the empty day. hallway of a hospital. Yeah. And that is spooky in its own way. All the hospitals, whether it's the liminal spaces and the fluorescent lighting, the sterile mm-hmm. feeling, it being so white, or even just a lot of modern hospitals, at least here in America, like during the day, they are filled with giant windows and all the entrances. So it's filled with sunlight. But even then, it still feels discomfort. Like they do their best because everyone knows like a hospital is not a comfortable place to be in and they do their best but it almost makes it feel worse because it feels like you're in this artificially like made paradise which i think this movie explores a bit of yeah and actually that just reminds me like years ago i had to go get ecg the one for your head because i have migraines i used to have migraines yes oh are they seizures or whatever and i guess i just happened to go to a wing of the hospital that was really quiet so i go up there and you're used to going into hospitals and seeing people 
milling about and it was just empty. And I'm walking down these corridors trying to find this office and I don't see another soul. Yeah. It gave me that eerie, unsettled feeling, you know, that liminal feeling. Because most of the time you're going to like family docs and like family clinics, yeah, like exactly. the general health, those are always crowded because yeah. like everyone's trying to get in. But a lot of the like more weird specialty clinics, there are certain parts of every hospital, no matter how busy they are, where at times it's like that, where it's totally empty. Where And, and I think the uh, Killing a Sacred Deer does a great job of establishing that because, again, even though this is not our world, going back to Twisted Mirror, yeah. might as well be the other side of the mirror. And like this is what the beings on the other side of the mirror actually act like, mm-hmm. trying to be human. <laughs> and yeah. like they're not. And I'll but. say, too, I think there is some meta-awareness of the absurdity and almost supernatural nature of the predicament with the characters themselves Mm -hmm. because there are those moments where they have these freakouts where they kind of call attention to the fact that this is fucking ridiculous. Otherwise, they're just like blankly sarcastic about their predicament. Yeah. The sister being like, Mom, Dad, he's dying. Like, yeah. <laughs> that line delivery cracked me yeah, up yeah, so yeah. much. Well, I'm thinking specifically of the moment where Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman are going back and forth about what the hell are we doing here? Like, what is going on? How do we fix this? You know, Nicole Kidman says something like, I just want this to be figured out. And Colin Farrell's like, There is a way we can put a stop to all this. All we need to do is find the tooth of a baby crocodile the blood of a pigeon, and the pubes of a virgin. And then we just have to burn them all before sunset. Let me see. Do we have any spare teeth lying around? Teeth? Pubes? Nope, nothing here. Let me see. Any hair? Pubes? Teeth? Nothing in this box either. Where are they? Sure they were here earlier. I put them here myself. Who's been moving things around? It's unbelievable. I don't suppose you've got any pubes I can have by any chance. Oh, I forgot. You don't have any left. We don't have any of the things we need. The very end of that, like, we don't have any of the things we need. That weird resignation of this is fucking ridiculous. No, we don't have it. We don't know what kind of situation we're in. But calling attention to that, I think, bursts that bubble of criticism a little bit where people are like, it just makes no sense. Why is he doing the things he's doing? How does he have this power? Can you explain? No, you don't need to worry about that. That's not the point of this movie at all. Mm-hmm. It's the nightmare logic that it functions on. You just have to fucking roll with that mm-hmm. and accept that that's part of what we're looking at here for like a larger purpose. Then those freakouts or those moments where the characters shed actually a little bit of emotion comes yeah. through and self-awareness are even more impactful because again, then 95% of the rest of the movie is them acting like, again, automatons or aliens, along with the absurdity of the movie. But then, you ha- again, you have those moments. Colin Farrell, especially, like, he has, like, two moments, specifically that scene and then the one where he, like, goes to the house. He's yeah, he's knocking like, on the door, yeah. Martin! Open the door or I will smash it down and I will fuck you and your mother just the way you want it! And then, like, you have the scene where uh, Nicole Kidman is crying in the arms of the anesthesiologist. You have the scene with the daughter where she, like, crawls down to the basement and is throwing shit at him, telling him, use your powers to, like, reverse this on me. But then, again, they just, next scene, they go back to being that weird, strange, like, monotone. Speaking of absurdity, the kids just dragging their limp bodies around the house was really <laughs> love it. absurd and hilarious and freaky at the same time. Like they're yeah. just like in the kitchen and casually you just see like a child slither into the kitchen to ask a question. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you're doctors. You've got to have a better way of them getting around the house. But that's just the world they're in. It's just weird. 
you're casually at a dinner and your coworker anesthesiologist, you're just having small talk and you're like, oh, yes, Kim got her first period last week. <laughs> that to me was like peak what aliens think people say and to like, each other. they're like, interesting. You're like, well, yeah. they care about each other's uh-huh. children. Obviously, they'd like to know about their menstruation. Yeah. Going back to the basic premise of our show. I'm supposed to be the eyes of the newbie. Mm-hmm. Seeing that legitimately like did freak me out. And where I did start to get worried, like, oh, shit, is this movie going to end with me in tears and feeling awful? Was the very first moment where the son manifests the first stage of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then like they bring him to the hospital and he's walking again for a second. And then it happens again. That scene was harrowing as a parent foreseeing like someone you're supposed to take care of, fully expecting that they are going to bury you. You don't bury your own mm-hmm. children. Watching that happen to the little boy, and you can't do anything. And that shot, it's like all the way from the all very, the way very top, top, and yeah. they're like tiny. There's no one around. They're in a hospital, but it, it takes a while for her to get a hold of anyone or for someone to see what's yeah. happening. Yeah. And that's just their predicament in a nutshell, right? They're in a hospital. No one can help them. And that's the primordial fear of every parent of how do you fight a disease that's taking away like your child? Yeah. You can't. And that's just, it's chaos. It's random bad luck. That's the scariest shit to me in. The original Exorcist movie is not any of the like, yeah. your mother sucks cocks in hell, head spinning shit. <laughs> it's the scene where they take Reagan to the hospital. They're doing all the tests. They're putting it through an MRI and they do that spinal tap. It's all that kind of shit that really bothers me because she's clearly uncomfortable. She is in pain. She is fucking scared. And it's so much more harrowing than like fucking spider crawling. Mm-hmm. Well, to you. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. You're right, though. They go through all the same similar scenes with the son. And even though the son is not as reactive because no one in this movie is that reactive, it's still like harrowing to see that. And like, I've assisted doing spinal taps on children when I was still actively nursing. Like, it's fucked up. And, like, when you really think about it, it's something that has to be done. It's modern medicine, but it's still just what you're technically doing, especially to a child, is kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. But then the movie kept going with that idea of literally their legs don't work. And then you have all those scenes where they're just crawling around the house. They just have to go back to normal. I mean, that was was horrifying when the doctors were just like, I think you should go home. Yeah. That is the answer. We're done here. And he shows another moment of emotion where he's just like, you call yourself professionals. I'm very disappointed in this hospital or whatever. But they just go home. Yeah. What makes it especially hilarious. Because again, another movie, like another like movie that's trying to deal more with trauma and just Mm -hmm. like explore the idea of trauma. The children would be like, I don't want to die, mommy. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It would have been sad. They would have been like crying. But the movie doesn't do any of that. It instead, actually, like, pokes fun at the children by having them, like, slink around Slither the house down everywhere. the stairs. I'm like, ow. They're not showing any emotion. They're all acting robotic, too. And, like, it's hilarious. By the way, kind of along the lines of Colin Farrell having those brief moments of showing emotion and, like, realization of how absurd everything is, that fucking remark he does to Nicole Kidman, his own wife. Oh, yes. I think with psychological support, psychiatric treatment, if necessary... He will be just fine. He'll walk again and he'll eat again. Of course he will. Anna, if I was nearsighted, I had a cataract, I'd let comment, then your opinion really would be valuable. But thankfully, Bob's eyesight is perfect. And I can honestly say that if you ever needed glasses, you'd be the first person I'd consult. But right now, the boy can't eat. He's paralyzed in both legs, so I'm sorry. I'm not remotely interested in your medical opinion. 
whatever that line was. And in front of everyone. Was such a uh-huh. fuck you, like, we haven't gotten into it, but this movie also explores family dynamics uh-huh. <laughs> quite darkly. That was very much just like a strained marriage. One of the biggest fuck yous from another spouse I've seen in any, like, movie or TV show. Like, wow, I, I could feel, like, the tension and her staring daggers into him. Like, that was one where I literally cringed in my chair, the like, recoiled, when he delivered them. Yeah, like, especially, oh, like, boy. telling her in front of the whole panel of other doctors. Yeah. It was just like, yeah. wow. Yeah, that was a tough one. Yeah, fuck you. So, to take a quick step back to a point that y'all both made, Nina specifically, that's another, like, real-life thing that this movie kind of hits on. And, and it's strange that I watch this movie again when my wife and I are like having a conversation about this exact idea that, you know, what's fucking frustrating is going to see a doctor and they can't figure out what's wrong with you. And mm-hmm. then you have to go see another doctor and then you have to go see a specialist and then you have to do all these fucking tests and then you have to wait and wait and wait. And okay, we're going to try this one thing. We'll see if it, oh, this doesn't fucking work. Okay. Well, this calls into the problems. Okay. So now like, let's try this other thing, but then let's also do this other thing to treat this other side effect. Now, and just stuff spirals and stuff snowballs. You know, we were literally having an argument about this yesterday about how fucking aggravating it is to deal with healthcare in that sense. That, like, it is still a practice and doctors mm-hmm. still don't have all the fucking answers. But it's just especially frustrating for things that seem like they should fucking have it down by now that you go and they're like, we have no idea. And this movie playing with that idea some with the kids is like extra fucking terrifying because it's one thing if it's you. If it's you as an adult and you go and the doctor's like, we don't know what's fucking wrong with you. When it's your child and the doctor's like, we don't know. You're like, wait, what the fuck? What? What are you doing? Why are we paying you? Why are you here? You're a doctor. You're supposed to fucking have the answers for this. It's just so absurd and comical like how frustrating that shit can be in real life to see it in this movie but with the weird context of supposedly this curse that's been kind of doled out and this judgment that's been doled out is just kind of extra work is like you know where it's going you as Colin Farrell like in the audience you know where it's going and you're just kind of waiting to see like where the next step comes in you know that's kind of the other thing too with the relationship between Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman the like amount of suspicion and seeming like disconnect with like what's going on with each other's lives. Like nobody in this family, despite them all being this picture perfect family, there's just so much weird disconnect where like none of them really (laughs) know each other. None of them really know like what's going on with anybody. But then there's very specific stuff like the daughter seemingly replicates sexual behavior that we see Nicole Kidman do earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. And that raises a lot of questions about, is this something that she maybe saw them doing one time? Is this something that was done to her? And the movie does not really go into that necessarily, other than just present it for how it is and give you this idea that there's stuff going on below the surface with this family. And there are things where like, they are not, on the same page, they're not communicating with each other. Like, there is a fundamental disconnect within this seemingly perfect family. And there is kind of this weird rot that's going on. And you have to wonder, like, is so much of what's happening right now a self-fulfilling prophecy? Is this karma? Is this, like, this weird kind of karmic balance coming into play with how this family lives their lives? Because the other side of this, too, is, I mean... They're well off. 
very well off. They live in a very nice house in a neighborhood that is clearly outside of the city. They seemingly want for nothing. Their kids seemingly want for nothing. There is very much this accessibility that they have. And there's a toll that you have to pay eventually, somewhere along the way, karmically, for A, having that kind of power and wealth and access, but then also what that affords you in society. And kind of one of the big things that we learn is, ultimately, Stephen committed a murder. Let's say that, right? A patient dies under his care. And so there's initially the whole debate back and forth about, do doctors kill patients? Do patients just die? Who's responsible? I was going to say, surgeons don't kill patients, though. Anesthesiologists do. No. Exactly. <laughs> that right? was funny, too. <laughs> that the anesthesiologist yes. does the same yeah, thing. I laughed when he said the, other, the opposite. Yeah. 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 And the wild thing is, they then throw in this extra monkey wrench of, well, had he been drinking that morning? And, like, let's put that in context. Yeah, does he drink with every operation is, like, what they're implying. There. The anesthesiologist goes, well, you know, back then it wasn't a big deal. Let's let's put that in context, though. Yeah. Huh? Right? <laughs> We're talking multiple drinks mm-hmm. in the morning when you know you have a scheduled heart surgery. Open heart surgery, yeah. I think is the what fuck? they say, too. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. that is... A whole different level of alcoholism. A. Which, heads up, by the way, horror newbies, this movie opens with a open oh, heart yeah. surgery, and yeah. you see the open heart. So, yes, like, FYI, the- trigger warning. Yeah, yeah, it is real, by the way. Colin Farrell was present for that operation, watched the oh, whole wow. thing, and they filmed all of it, so that was all real. Wow. I was wondering about that. I was like, how did they replicate that heart? Yeah, uh-huh. it looked pretty fucking real. I, I took care of heart patients in the PICU, and every once in a while, we'd have an open heart. They'd actually just like put a like a special type of dressing over it. And that looked pretty fucking real in this movie. So I was yeah. wondering if that was footage from a real surgery. So I'm glad you cleared that up. So what's wild is, again, doctors, nurses, surgeons, anesthesiologists, every level of medical care, you lose people. That's a fact of the job. Sometimes it's your fault. That's a fact of the job. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's factors outside of your control. Sometimes it's your fault. That happens. And that's just part of the job that's tough and medical professionals learn to deal with that or they don't learn to deal with it or they compartmentalize it or whatever. Like everybody reacts to that kind of stuff differently. And sometimes you even question if it was your fault or not. Right. You don't really have an answer. And in this case, we are told by multiple characters that he had been drinking and people (laughs) just act like that's no big deal. But that happened. And so no matter how much they try to downplay it, There's no fucking way that that didn't factor into how things went. And what's extra aggravating is seemingly like he faced zero consequences for this because he's a heart surgeon with skill and wealth and power working at a very high end hospital that looks like a fucking cathedral. He is as close to God as any person can be with the power of life and death in his hands. And so he skates. The question is, do I have a God complex? Dr. Kessler says yes. Which makes me wonder if this lawyer has any idea as to the kind of grades one has to receive in college to be accepted at a top medical school. If you have the vaguest clue as to how talented someone has to be to lead a surgical team. I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England. So I ask you, 
When someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock, who do you think they're praying to? You go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis, and you go to your church and with any luck you might win the annual raffle, but if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. Had something like this happened to literally any of us in our day jobs, anybody else in their day jobs, we'd be in jail. We'd be in mm-hmm. fucking jail. If I did something at my job. We'd at least not have our job. Yeah. Yeah, you'd at least be fired. <laughs> if yeah. I did something at my job that resulted in somebody fucking dying, you would have to pay consequences for that. And you were drinking before that event. You yeah. Know, that's the thing. Yes. Even if you could somehow prove It reminds me of when the people put the asterisks on like someone who breaks a record in baseball when they were doing steroids. You can't separate it. You had two drinks before you did the surgery. We can never know if it would have come out differently had you not, but it doesn't really matter because you shouldn't have been doing it anyways. Uh Uh-huh. And with everything this movie is poking fun at and showing and commenting on, again, I think all of it is very matter of fact and very easy to see. Mm-hmm. in my opinion at least, but I think he is also pointing and poking fun at the real life horror of that doctors do that mm-hmm. and medical, pro- not just doctors, I mean yeah. the medical professions in general, sometimes they drink on the job, sometimes they have a couple shots before they go into a surgery like, I've heard stories about that, you see it on the news sometimes, it should be covered way more than it actually is probably some people just can't handle the stress or like they think it helps them it. And family members don't get to then go and demand mm-hmm. retribution. They don't get to go and say, yeah. well, now I get one of yours. So in this world, it can happen. And really, you know, Aaron talking about, there's a couple things that hit me, which is a lot of this is about blame and responsibility, like not taking responsibility and almost being forced yeah. to by the universe. So if you just even pull out more and you don't want to see it as a myth, just seeing it as Sometimes bad things happen and you're wondering, why did it happen to me? Did I deserve this? Did some, did I do something to bring this on to myself? And in, in this case, if you just take out even Martin's existence, it's like the universe is making your family sick because you were very, very bad, you know, and there's nothing yeah. you can do to stop it. This is a rebalancing of the scales. Whatever a God or a universe or whatever sees is just, you don't get to determine that. They do. Yeah. And he tries. He tries to defy that, just like Agamemnon. Yeah, and he tries to be a man of science, and he keeps trying to be in denial and get more tests. And his wife, the lowly ophthalmologist, is like, dude. This is it. Yeah. It's clear that this is not something that we can fix in the hospital. We just have to go back home and figure this out. We have to get this guy to renege it somehow. But yeah, like talking about control and weird stuff, being a doctor, the general anesthesia thing. Yeah. Back to what the daughter does. Like you said, the weird family dynamics. The wife keeps talking about doing renovations to her clinic, but it, it's like no one is gives a shit. Do you know what I mean? She keeps yeah. mentioning yeah. it, and they're like, yeah. anyways, they don't even say anyways. It's like it's yeah. not even acknowledged. And then I notice they don't interact with their kids a lot, and the one time he does with the daughter, he's teaching her how to sing. It's a performance, right? It's something for school. There's no warmth. And again, none of these characters have warmth. It's not a warm world. But yeah. as a family, again, they interact in almost like these little vignettes, but they're not like a unit. It's just these little, yeah, there's just this lack of humanity in how they interact with each other. And then 
Yeah. If he was a raging alcoholic, it had to have been interesting in that house in the past. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. We don't get to see that, but the implication is there. On that family dynamic, because again, I think this movie is also about power dynamics in general, mm-hmm. but um, along with the family dynamic, because both of you guys have brought up the lack of warmth and just how distant they are from each other. I felt like, and yes, they all are distant with each other, but I felt like there were elements, even in this weird automatron world, of an Oedipus complex happening in this house, with the father kind of leaning more towards the daughter, and then an, uh, an elect, wait, is electric complex it's electric the, complex. Uh, electric complex, and then Oedipus complex with the son and the mom. Yeah. Yeah, I got those two mixed up, uh, but because the mom is seems always a little more protective of the son, and really just it has disdain for the daughter in ways slaps the shit out of her what twice in this movie once That's or right, twice yeah. takes her phone away and and just says really shitty things to her and then the dad you get more scenes with him and the daughter and the only thing you get from him with the son is oh he needed to like water the plants like he and should cut his hair mm-hmm. and he needs to cut his hair yeah so like it's also that weird element to it too of actually the parents do have their favorites even though they aren't they're pretending like they don't um and granted he does I guess, show the right amount of rage and anger about the situation when it's mostly happening to his son. I have a few thoughts on that specifically. So if we look past just the Euripides tragedy, Iphigenia and Aulis, right? So that is the first chunk of that story. And then there is a whole other back-end chunk that was later written by Aeschylus. It's the uh, Arestia trilogy. It's intriguing because the gist of it is Agamemnon returns from the Trojan War victorious, is then murdered by his wife upon his return from the Trojan War, and then his son Orestes then murders the mother and her lover to avenge his father. And then ultimately Apollo and Hermes and Hera and Athena are all fucking implicated in this giant string of events. And they kind of decide ultimately that, like, going forward, it's probably best that justice be left up to, like, people themselves and not up to the gods because we make fucking dumb decisions. And so that's the back end part of this story that the family essentially crumbles from within. There is all this back and forth backstabbing and relationships that kind of cross in weird ways. You also learn that the House of Atreus, which is the house that Agamemnon has descended from has been cursed for generations due to like all of his forebears sins because the family, you know, was totally full of murder and rape and incest and cannibalism and wealth hoarding and all these insane taboo things. Right. And so it's implied that Agamemnon also has his share of skeletons in the closet. And we learn in this movie Steven has the moment where he tells his son and therefore all of us, the audience, in the most excruciatingly mundane manner that he fucking jerked off his father while his father was passed out drunk when he was a child. And again, there's very little reaction. He's like, tell me a story, son. Yeah. Tell me a story. What fucked up thing have you done? And his son's like, I'm 10, dad. I have not done anything (laughs) that's fucked up like that. What are you talking about? I can't walk. Okay. That's what we're dealing with. I don't need to know about you jerking your dad off. They had to, during the production, take the boy actor out, (laughs) right? Noise cancellation. Yeah. I call him the boy because he is the boy and also the God of War 2018 and God of War Ragnarok. 
He plays Atreus, Kratos' son. I find it so funny. Something about his name being Bob. It just yeah. doesn't sound Bob. like, I don't know. I'm sure there are kids, that, usually Bobby maybe, him being Bob, it just was funny in and of itself. They're always like, oh, Bob this, Bob that. It just didn't fit with the kid. Well, it doesn't fit with the family either. You expect his name to yeah. be like Witherton or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's like Kim and Anna and Steven and Bob. Bob. The little yeah. boy, Bob. Bob, Bob the boy. But yeah, there's all these weird implications about, again, the daughter mirroring the like faux anesthesia rape play. And Steven clearly like has all this shame and guilt for like killing this boy's father, but he tries to make up for it in like the most trivial material ways that Mm -hmm. he can to like, you know, make good. He like buys him a fucking expensive watch here. This will help you get over your father being dead. I hope I got the metal band with it too. I upgraded. Yeah. Yeah. That was my first laugh moment. He got the metal band, but then he's like, I'll switch it out for a leather band. Yeah. Almost like uh-huh. he was already aware. It was totally like, a yeah, fuck I know you, you're game, yeah. you little mm-hmm. asshole. Yeah. Not once does Steven ever consider actually throwing himself on the mercy of true justice. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like, yes. Never once does it actually cross his mind that I need to fucking own up to the fact that I was an alcoholic for years and I potentially killed multiple patients with my neglect. And substance abuse and decision making, mm-hmm. right? Which is why he can't kill himself to get out of this no. fate. Yeah, like it has exactly. To be, he right? literally says he couldn't have done it because he's a surgeon. Whatever the logic behind that is, he exactly he's not once whatever just the fuck says, that means. My bad. <laughs> Sorry. Like, no, it's just like, oh, he died, but I didn't kill him. He doesn't ever take responsibility, and and, and there's this just this theme of justice and what is justice. And when Martin's in the basement. When Stephen kidnaps him and they try to, I guess, torture a reversal of this cosmic justice thing coming. And he even says, I don't really understand it or I don't know, but this is what's happening. This is how it's going to work. On one hand, it it seems fair in the most basic sense. You killed a very important person to me. Now someone very important to you must die. But these are innocent people, right? So, you know, the question of what is even justice and Mm -hmm. what does that mean? Because Martin seems satisfied with, he's content with this outcome. Seemingly at the end, he seems like he can walk away from it now. The work is done. We're even Stevens. We each got a family member yeah. gone and we're good. But that's not really, you know, how most of us would see it. Yeah. Well, and I almost felt like that ending scene, especially like the looks on all the family. I read this kind of in reactions to this movie because I did a little bit of that too, Nina. And I, I like this take because it's kind of how I felt too. The surface value of it is, oh, it's just the family members kind of regarding him with coldness because he forced him into what happened. But I also took it as the curse is broken, but the sacrifice is still unworthy because of the way he does it. And we'll Mm -hmm. get to that later, like the way he decides to make it random instead of the sacred deer. It still takes the decision making off of him in a way. Yeah, Yeah. off of him. Like the sacred deer is supposed to be a chosen sacred sacrifice. Honoring it. Yeah. Yeah. And he took the coward way out again. And uh, kind of funny you brought up the Orestes second part of that tragedy, because, uh, again, the idea of like killing your own family member, that's such a thing in so much Greek tragedy, but even just some Hamlet and Shakespearean tragedies. <laughs> funny enough, I knew about the Orestes, uh, Orestes myth from the song Orestes from a Perfect Circle.
a teenager, I remember looking up the lyrics to that and reading song meanings. And that whole song is about how he was damned if he didn't kill his mother because his mother killed his father. But he was damned because he killed his mother and they were of the same flesh. And in the end, he created that perfect circle of being guilty. Violence begetting violence. yeah, yeah, Yeah. And being damned. So, yeah, I find that interesting that this movie plays with that idea so much. Yeah. And to circle back around to, like, the point that we were making earlier, too, there's seemingly zero consequences for Steven at the end of the film as well. I mean, his son's dead. This young man that he shot in the thigh is somehow still alive, right? And, like, everybody just agrees we're not going to talk about this. Somehow, seemingly, they cover everything up and they go to the diner for some fucking french fries. And I think to go back to like the idea that there is a whole different level of justice and accountability and power that's afforded to certain people in society, right? I think what's real life scary, and we see it more and more and more and more every fucking day, Mm -hmm. is knowing that there's an entire class of society that exists that consciously or subconsciously knows that they can commit heinous acts and get away with zero consequences. You know, you have the people like Steven. Steven seems to be in the more naive, not really fully understanding the agency that he has fully until he, like, is in a situation where he has to take advantage of that. And he largely lives his life unaware of how privileged he is in that sense. And, you know, then there's Trump saying, I could murder someone on Fifth Avenue and people would still vote for me. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. You know, there is that level of psychopathy that comes along with, I know I can do fucked up shit and you can't do anything about it. And that's legitimately fucking terrifying that, like... That's a thing. That's a thing we have to contend with in the real world, and we could potentially be victims of cosmically, literally, you know, in various ways. And it all just goes back to, like, the weird, giant, fucked up, absurd nature of, again, just Greek tragedies and how seemingly random a lot of it is. Going back to the Greek tragedy thing, some of the things that seem weird, like the dad hand job, (laughs) or even the fact that Martin just walks into the picture and the daughter is willing to do anything for him. She's almost kind of in on it at one point. Yeah, I think they give that away in the end when she's the one eating the french fries in the diner. Yeah, like, and yeah. she, you know, she walks to the window when he talks to her, even though she's paralyzed. And yeah, that really just speaks of literal Greek mythology. There's so much, everyone's just banging everybody, <laughs> mothers and sons and daughter. you know what I mean? And gods will sweep in and just take someone's daughter. He literally does that. He comes in and in within one meeting, she's smitten and she's willing to do anything for him. And that is very much like a Zeus type thing to do. Just come in and take someone's daughter. He fucks her over anyway in the end, because again, going back to see yeah, where she crawls on the base. She was just a vessel for what he needed. A, a toy, yeah. a plaything. Even if she was in on it, he fucked her over too, because yeah. again, that, that whole scene where she crawls on the basement and is throwing yeah. shit at him, like reverse it. He has no, like, he what has are you no doing? real interest in her. That, that's the thing. He's almost, Oddly, for a teenage boy, is like an asexual. He's kind of like otherworldly, right? He humors her, but he's just humoring all of them. He's like on a different level than them. And and it could be, you almost could say, again, he's some sort of demigod or something where the worldly things that interest the mere average person 
he's above that. He's in this like this next level plane where he's just like, whatever, some teenage girl wants to throw herself at me, who cares? Even with his mom, he treats his mom of just like this thing he's going to like try and pimp off to, yeah. to Steven. Yeah, to kind of just shut her up. She's been sad, yeah. so... Yeah. Maybe I can use Steven. The only person he seems to have any affection for was his dad. Mm-hmm. And even then you wonder if it's just more of just like, well, I need to get my revenge because that's just what you do when you kill someone's father. I, I don't know. Like, I do think there was at least some affection there. He even proudly talks about how, like, he eats spaghetti just like oh, his yeah, dad Oh, yeah, the spaghetti did. thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, not long after my dad died, someone told me that I eat spaghetti the exact same way he did. They said, um, what an extraordinary impression this fact had made on them. Look at the boy. Look how he eats spaghetti. Exactly the same way his father did. He sticks his fork in, he twirls it around and around and around and around and around. Then he sticks it in his mouth. Fucking spaghetti. <laughs> oh, and the way he's uh, eating it. That was the thing. You know, he's supposed to be this big menacing figure, but he's oddly juvenile for his age. Childlike, yeah. Childlike, yeah. even though his language is very formal, his body mm-hmm. language, and he does a really good job with that. It could be a seven or eight-year-old, the way he eats his spaghetti and the way he kind of talks about things and the way he is posture. That's also why I find it so interesting that this girl's really into him because he might be an older guy, but he doesn't act like a cool older guy. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. He just got this spell on her. Oh, God, that whole scene where like they take a walk and then it, it shows her singing and he's just sitting there. Yes. It's so fucking cringy. Like it's like a bad <laughs> date you're watching. Yes. I laughed so hard yes. because like she kind of sucks at singing. Oh, she's awful. He's really awkward <laughs> and not charming at all. Talk to Aaron about this. And this is kind of a hot take, but like I hate the movie Juno. It is cringe romance to the max to me. This is like taking that idea and like multiplying it by 10. Just cringe bad date and somehow it's working. That whole scene cracked me up. Well, it's like one of our favorite scenes from one of our favorite shows where there's group people hanging out and they're just all vibing and a guy grabs his guitar and starts singing. (laughs) Just you. James has always been cool. (laughs) Love that shit. Anyway, there's something very unsettling, too, about... God, the way he breaks the news to Steven about the curse, because the curse is the whole linchpin of the movie, but he's just so, like... Matter of fact about it. All right, I gotta tell you this thing. It's kind of awkward. And you're in a rush, so I gotta, like, rush it out. I'm just gonna say it out with my breath. (laughs) Yeah, it was almost like a kid admitting to a bad grade, Mm. but not even to their Uh parent, to, like, their uncle or something. The whole dynamic with him and Steven is so fucking unsettling and you're not sure what you're even looking at for the first half of the movie until that moment essentially Mm -hmm. i remember the first time i watched this movie and you're wondering like what is going on with them is this a weird molestation thing yeah Mm -hmm. is this like a teenage boy that he's been grooming and yeah and then you wonder like is he some weird bastard child from a previous relationship that's like wanting to jump into the family now? You're you're not sure what it is because it's too close. It's too familial. It's too mm-hmm. fam- familial, not in like family sense, but familial in like a we're too comfortable with each other to like not know each other super mm-hmm. well kind of way. Or not to be drawn together by an extreme circumstance. 
Yeah. I don't even think that the amount of time they've been seeing each other is that long, but it's like a trauma bond in a way. Yeah. yeah. So it kind of accelerates the connection there. And he's, you know, showing up randomly at the hospital. Like he doesn't have a clear sense of what's appropriate. So it, it just adds to that weirdness. Yeah. You know, of their interactions. Yeah. Another thing that I've noticed, and this sent me down a fun rabbit hole. And you know what? I'll take some credit for this because frankly, I didn't <laughs> see anybody else talking about this. Mm-hmm. Go off King. You know, there's I saw lots of people talking about, you know, the Iphigenia tragedy. Because he has said specifically that, right? But again, this goes back to my point about I think there is a lot more intentionality and purpose and decision making that is happening. It's not just accidental that things are the way they are. So here's my question for you guys. What city is this take place in? I thought it was New York in the beginning. Am I not remembering? Fuck, I thought it was San Francisco. (laughs) I thought I saw New York City in the beginning, but that's like a vague memory. I also thought it was in Canada. It is Cincinnati, Ohio. Why? Yeah, why? Because this could take place anywhere. That stood out to me. So I was looking at the production stuff of this movie. Where did they film? They filmed in Cincinnati. With this being a Greek director, Colin Farrell is your star. Barry is also Irish. Farrell and Kogan are Irish. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole, Nicole Kidman's Australian. Was like raised in Australia, right? Yeah. The daughter, I can't think of her name right now, is British. British. Right? Yeah. So anyway, I was like, what the fuck? They shot in Cincinnati. This was around the time of Avengers and that shit. Did they also just shoot in Cincinnati for those tax incentives? I looked it up like, no, the movie is canonically set in Cincinnati. That seems really fucking weird. I mean, everything in this movie is really weird. Because this could be set literally anywhere, but this could also be set nowhere, right? (laughs) Like, this could be set in just a nowhere city, right? That's what I actually thought. It was just city. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. subliminal (laughs) space, backroom city. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) So it is canonically set in Cincinnati. That's purposeful. So I did a little bit of digging on this. The city is named after Lucius... Quinctius Cincinnatus. Wow. <laughs> He's the Roman leader who we all kind of know famously just from like the one anecdote of he was this regular guy who got plucked from his farm to like lead all of Rome against these invaders and he was given complete and total power. But when the job was done, he did the right thing and he hanged up the crown and he stepped away and gave power back to the people, right? That's the most sterile bullshit version of this, right? (laughs) So that's the gist of it. Became a dictator, was so brilliant that he like resolved the whole conflict in two weeks and then turned back over power. Cincinnati has always been this general idea of Western leadership and civic duty and modest virtue and all this, right? When people talk about George Washington, they often talk about how he was like Cincinnati. He never wanted to be the president of these United States, you see. You know, he always (laughs) thought we shouldn't have that type of structure, no kings in America. He never wanted to be the leader. So he did his duty as president. He founded our country. And then he said, I'm fucking done. Mm -hmm. And he retired back to Mount Vernon, blah, blah, blah. I went to Mount Vernon in the past year because we now live up here. There's lots of fucking talk about how he's like Cincinnati. So, and there's still to this day, like parks, cities, streets, all kinds of bullshit named after Cincinnati. So that said, in reality, as far as what we actually know, Cincinnati was a very wealthy patrician 
the patricians at this point in Rome, this was when Rome was still a kingdom. There was a king of Rome, and then there were the patricians who were like all the noble families who legitimately really actually kind of ran things because they were fucking wealthy, and they could hire their own armies, and they could hire their own resources and everything else, right? So he was a member of a very wealthy patrician clan, and one specifically that violently opposed all the plebeians' efforts to create a codified Roman constitution that would effectively neuter all the ruling class and authority that the patricians had, right? It was very much this power of the people. We want to become a republic. We want to have representation. The rich people can't just fucking run shit anymore. And he was greatly opposed to that. His son, Queso, literally was the leader of a fascist gang that was running around and putting down all the commoners trying to organize and carry out opposition acts. And he literally murdered somebody and got held up on charges and then bounced town before he could actually be held accountable. That's kind of how, like, Cincinnatus, rather, the father, that's how he ended up being poor and humble and going back to a farm was he literally had to pay a giant fucking fine for his son's crime that wiped out most of the family wealth. And so he had to, in air quotes, retire to this family estate outside the city. He was never like a humble farmer. It was never that blue collar, right? But it's even to the point where like he's often depicted holding the fasces, which is the bundle of bound wooden rods with an axe in the center that is a symbol of state and ruler authority over the people and power to hand down punishment. It is literally the official symbol of Mussolini's National Fascist Party. I was about to say, a fascist group had to have used it by now. Yeah. There's a lot of white nationalists <laughs> and weird yeah. tattoos and shit that you see now that use that iconography. The statue of Cincinnatus that is in Cincinnati is literally him holding this very right-wing weird symbol. So all this like status of him being this humble blue-collar guy that, you know, blah, blah, blah it was mostly bullshit. Literally, there is also this society of the Cincinnati that was founded by Henry Knox, which is like a fraternal, hereditary, good old boys club for the descendants of all the military officers who fought in the American Revolution that still exists to this day. <laughs> is that one of the ones where they like go behind closed doors and watch old 1940s porn or some whatever? And like... jerk each other off, yes. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. what it probably yeah. is, yeah. So anyway, all of that seems to mirror a lot of what we're seeing in this movie, too. That this is very much a story about somebody who literally gets away with murder and is now being held accountable for that. Even though they, like, escaped actual societal justice, they are now facing this cosmic, karmic justice instead. Mm -hmm. The other wild shit was Cincinnatus literally means the curly-haired. And this movie had a weird fucking preoccupation with body hair. Yes, with right? body hair. Yes, yes. 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 And, and head hair. Uh-huh. There's a lot of talk yeah. about how the whole family has like such beautiful hair, mm -hmm. which I'm on the record on this show that, man, Nicole Kidman's early 90s hair. Who? Jesus. You better get the best Anyway, there's like so much preoccupation with that. The whole scene of show me how much body hair you have. Are your armpits really three times hairier than mine? Like, what <laughs> the yeah. fuck is any of this yeah. weird 
Tim and Eric absurd shit. Again, I thought it was just his flexing his own weird humor for himself. Exactly. Again, unless we really, I don't know, we dig into the archives. I just Like think, you just did, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was a deep cut, by the way. The Cincinnati. <laughs> so that, that's what I'm saying. That's the weird rabbit hole shit that I kind of go down occasionally when we're talking about things on this show that there's no way that that's not on purpose. There's no way that there's not thematic reasons why he fucking set this story in Cincinnati, Ohio, and not literally anywhere else. There is more going on in terms of what he's peeling apart and what is on his mind in this movie about. Again, with an Irish guy. Yeah. Yeah. Just about what wealth and power and class can afford you and how literally the only thing that can intervene and balance the scales out is the gods intervening occasionally. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is a giant Amazonian huntress who demands that you sacrifice your daughter. And then sometimes it's this fucking weird boy in his underwear who is <laughs> slurping spaghetti. Yeah. spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of where I love the wild shit that Lanthimos pulls for these movies, because that is so idiosyncratic and singular. And you can't say that you've seen that before. You can't say that yeah. there's any other movie that's kind of playing on that same level in that same way. I think that's what keeps it from just being too heavy. Mm -hmm. and just exactly. Being like a movie yes. about justice and retribution and, and trauma. Privilege. Again. Yeah. And then they're like, look at my armpit hair. Do you have more armpit exactly. hair than I do? <laughs> you know? And it just like completely brings it back to the absurdity of the whole thing. And I think, you know, in some ways it does reflect our world where, you know, you bring up Trump. For example, on one hand, it's terrifying. And on the other hand, it's absolutely absurd. Uh -huh. You know, some of the things that yeah. he says, yeah. or just the fact that it's even happening, like, what is going on? Yeah. You know, everyone always jokes like we are on the wrong timeline, because sometimes it just feels like this can't be real. Exactly. It's just too absurd. And I think his versions of worlds, just it just really emphasizes that. So it just exaggerates those things. So the absurd is more <laughs> absurd. The cosmic justice stuff is even more cosmic-y and more justice-y. But in a strange, weird way. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Everything's just under a magnifying glass. Everything's like times yeah. a thousand in their version of the world. But still taking place in a, a setting that is familiar to you. And listeners, if you've been listening being like, oh, this sounds like a bunch of jumbled up mess of bullshit that I can't follow. No, this movie isn't like a David Lynch, Mulholland Drive It's not that shot. No. There is a start to a finish. There is a clear yeah. linear plot going on. It's There's a climax. The thing happens. Right. Yeah. There is a story that starts and finishes. It's just that all the in-between, the way people are acting, everything, like you are in a world that is, is, again, like the Twilight Zone, extremely familiar, but just something's a little off. But like it's off enough that like it's very noticeable. Can't quite describe it in one sentence why it's off. Yeah. I almost argue that this is more of a black comedy than a psychological horror thriller. But then you have the fucking... Georgie Leggetti and Johnny Byrne music in the background that's just yeah. ratcheting shit up.
yes. making you feel like you're in a goddamn nightmare. And I think that's yeah. just the discord. Again, it's all about, again, uh-huh. you're on this movie and it's like, it's just like you're on a ride and you don't know where it's taking you. And on one hand, it's strangely funny. And on the one hand, it's creepy because there's a lot of weird sex stuff going on. And then you got this music that is super charged and, you know, designed to give you that horror feel. But I like that. I don't know. Personally, I like that yeah. weird incongruous feeling yeah. trying to figure out where is this going? Like, is this going to be serious? Is this going to be funny? Or like, where are we going with this? You could argue there's even a degree, and I think I brought it up earlier, of a waiting for Godot. Also version of absurdity where none of this actually really matters. Mm-hmm. Because even the sacrifice, something that is extremely tragic, the parent killing the child, even that is done in such a matter-of-fact, absurd way. They don't sit heavy on, like, no one reacts with tears. You don't see a funeral. You don't see any of that. They seem more annoyed in the end when they're leaving the diner than anything. And even yeah. when it's happening, they're just sitting there. Everyone's accepted. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, this is what we have to do. So we're just going to yeah. sit here, and, you know, you're going to do what you got to do, and please don't pick me, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, like, you can assume the curse is done with, but I don't know. Like, I mean, yeah, sure, they're all walking, and everyone seems fine, and he just looks at them, but, like, what was the point? And, like, that's where it was, like, waiting for Godot. Like, yeah. maybe there is no point. That futility and kind yeah, of that random, weird... random chaos. And meaninglessness of it all. Exactly, right? Yeah. Which, that's a lot of how so many Greek myths feel at the end of the day like the odyssey goes on a lot of fucking directions and there's a lot of things that the odyssey talks about but like dude goes on all these fucking adventures and then comes back home and for what where does the odyssey like really resolve for that character he just kind of yeah. farms yeah. or even agamemnon goes <laughs> he does the whole thing and then he comes back and he gets murked anyways <laughs> exactly yeah it's very futile another thing i saw and this was actually on reddit and i don't remember the username but They brought up a thing about transactions, which I thought was interesting, but I I would take a step further and say it's more about this constant maybe need to balance. But there's a lot of tit for tat, I guess, explain like when the wife, Anna, wants information from the anesthesiologist, right? He's like, what are you going to give me? Well, okay, then you get a hand job for that, right? A very unenthusiastic hand job. And then, you know, you were bringing up earlier how he gave a watch as if a watch would be in any way, in exchange for killing his dad. Yeah. And to me, there's this just constant trying to balance things throughout the movie in these like transactional ways. Again, it's this oddly non-human way of interacting. Everything just seems cold and calculated. Yeah. There's no attempt at empathy or understanding or mercy at all. It's as if everything can just be replaced by something else or exchanged yeah. for something yeah. else as if they're all equal. Despite it being called killing of a sacred deer, nothing is really sacred. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to the grocery <laughs> store and like literally being a penny short at the self checkout and it's the kind of thing where like if you were dealing with a regular teller, they would be like don't worry about it. You're good. Mm-hmm. I let you go today. Mm-hmm. But with a self-checkout, you can't fucking negotiate with that. There's yes, no negotiating yes, with it. Like, you yes. have to pay it or you can't leave. Like, th- there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's, it's mm-hmm. that same, like, weird lack of humanity that makes these kind of stories what they are, ultimately. And you can't not arrive at a conclusion. You have to resolve it one way or the other. You know, it doesn't leave you hanging, at least. So I saw a lot of the reactions, including more negative reactions and reviews and a lot of them are like, well, I didn't get it. 
or the other one was like, oh, this is so art house poor, I couldn't take it. But the one that I saw a lot of where people were like, I wanted to like this movie, I get what it was trying to do, but it felt almost too mechanical to me. Where I, I think that's actually a strength of the movie because it heightens the absurdity of everything. But for some people, it was just a little step too much of how mechanical everyone is, how mechanical the plot seems to be. And not wanting to watch a pointless, meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, if we go by the whole premise that everything's meaningless, you just spent, you know, two hours or whatever watching a meaningless movie where nothing matters. I thought it was comedic. Exactly. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I, I agree. I a lot of humor in it. I come out of it not feeling terrible despite what happens at the end. Well, it goes back to what I said earlier, that sometimes a movie doesn't just have to be about telling you a story, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's the core conceit of movie making is visually telling a story. Yeah. But sometimes that's kind of the nice thing is movies can transcend just being that. And they can be more about how does this movie make you feel in that moment? Does it make you feel dread? Does it make you feel uneasy? Does it make you feel sad? Does it make you feel happy? If a movie can actually change your emotional state in some way that I feel like it has still accomplished something whether you feel the story is satisfying or not is another question right but like sometimes a filmmaker is specifically aiming to give that type of emotional roller coaster and catharsis where some directors are just more concerned with technical storytelling it just depends on how that art was originally conceived and then how the audience is kind of meant to engage with it. And sometimes we don't always click with that stuff. I mean, we talk about all the time. Sometimes we'll watch a movie and it doesn't work for us and you revisit it years later and all of a sudden something works that time because you're in a different state of mind, different place in life. You approach it knowing something differently or have a different context or whatever, you know? And on the other hand, I've seen movies where it executes a story perfectly and I'm just meh about it. Like, it doesn't yeah. resonate with me on the other level, the, the level that you can't explain. And at the risk of making people projectile vomit at this, but, you know, <laughs> you know, when we look at forms of art, there's often like a song you really like and you don't actually listen to the lyrics. You know, we don't always hold music up to that standard where it has to tell a story, for example. We just like the way it makes us feel or it makes our brain tingle. And same thing with a visual art like painting or something like that. So, you know, why can't a movie just be about the experience of watching the movie? Versus having to have a perfect story structure to it. But I do understand how that's off-putting to a lot of people. Yeah, and if someone were to come up to me and say, I don't like this movie, I wouldn't judge them in the least. Yeah, I understand. I would understand, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I do think this movie is much better than the criticism it's gotten. Hell, like, talking about a movie that is less about a linear story and more about the themes it's trying to explore, the visual aspect, the performances... And it's regarded as one of the greatest movies of all time. It's on a lot of directors' top 10 movies of all time. I brought it up a while ago, Aaron, as a recommendation, is Bergman's Persona from 1966. That movie isn't really satisfying in like the wrapping up a climax and a plot. It never really gives you an answer. It just is. It just is what yeah. it is. And that's regarded as a masterpiece. You know, and I, I, I get it. Avant-garde, you can fuck up and it can just be like kind of up its own ass and that's it. But I, I'd argue that this movie is not that. It might be art house in some ways, but I don't think it's up its own ass. It's I don't think it's stuffy. so avant-garde. Yeah, I don't think it's so avant-garde yeah, that it's I don't. I don't think of it as a movie that takes itself so seriously. Yeah. I don't think it takes itself seriously yeah. at all. I think it's the opposite. Same. Lanthimos has a sense of humor 
And there's like satire that is present that helps it not be that stuffy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a perfect way of describing it, Nina. Yeah. I mean, any final thoughts about the actual movie before we run through the cast? I like a lot of the other ideas of Kyogen just being the devil. That's something that I didn't really consider the first time that I saw the movie. But I had a coworker that also casually mentioned, like, we were talking about Saltburn, actually. And then it's funny that you brought that up mm-hmm. before we were recording. You know, he was joking about, oh, yeah, this is the second time Barry Kogan's played the devil. And I was like, wait, what? What was the first time? And he was like, isn't he like the fucking devil and killing of a sacred deer? I was like, you know what? You could see that. You could see that. And it turns yeah. out mm-hmm. there's things like the Blue Jay Diner. Apparently, Blue Jays were like. In myth and lore and legend, the, like, servants of the devil. (laughs) I'm sorry. I can't imagine a blue jay being a force of nature. Like, come on. (laughs) No, partly also just because I'm thinking about regular show. Yeah. (laughs) There's also, like, lots of eye imagery. There's Amityville windows in the house, in the bedroom, which is kind of weird to see. Like Nina said, the overhead shot following Nicole Kidman and the sun down the escalator is, like, a really weird, unmoored... The camera shouldn't be here where it is at this moment kind of thing. You know, so like, that's some fun shit. I mentioned the score a minute ago as well, too. But God damn it, the music in this movie is so fucking good. I have a background in classical music as well, too. I've talked about this on the show. Schubert, the opening piece during the surgery, like that type of classical music. Yes, I can listen to Stabat Matter and F Minor from the Bavarian Radio Chorus. <laughs> Going back to the devil thing, it, it actually, oh my God, it's something to do with Jesus. Uh, I think it might be like when he's going through the passion. Yeah, it's, it's like a crucifixion march. Yeah. But stuff like the Yanni Christou and Nantiodromia, all that really insanely experimental shit, I can't just listen to it. God damn it, do I love that stuff being in a fucking movie. There's just something about how it sets a mood. And again, how this movie makes you feel. I I appreciate that he's willing to take weird swings like that with the score or lack of score for this movie. One last thing I wanted to ask you, because I think I caught it. I came on last and you guys already had a lot of time to talk before I finally got on. Did you guys mention anything about this movie has a weird critique on class we've kind of been talking about that a little bit the whole time i guess we just haven't made the specific link to martin talking about oh yeah 
you live in a, a nice house, much nicer than my house, in a neighborhood that's much nicer than my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment where you do go to his house and see his neighborhood, and you're like, oh, this is not what I was expecting either. But it is still, to his point, it's a step down. And there's kind of that weird, like, oh, you think you're, like, very well-off middle class by comparison, but then you see somebody who's more wealthy and more well-off than you are. And there's a lot of that dynamic going on in the movie that he's not a reliable narrator either, to a degree. When you actually go to his house in the neighborhood, and I think you guys brought this up, I was wondering about, like, the whole, like, oh, this is what happens when a poor person, when you let them in your life, they ruin it. But I think the movie doesn't at all sit with that notion, thankfully. And when you go to his house, meet his mom and all that, the way he describes it, you're kind of just assuming like, oh, very low class, dangerous neighborhood. And it's just more of a suburbia, like middle class neighborhood. I don't know. I just I was wondering if other people had felt that way. When you came in, we were also talking about Saltburn. And I think that's when we were saying that Ah, specific thing. Because that is really, that one slaps you in the face with class. Gotcha. Okay. This, I think, is a little subtler. I think the more relevant thing is, it's not just his class, but his profession. You know, there's just, oh, he's a doctor, right? And there's just this esteem. It is said that certain personality types that are antisocial go into surgery because it is actually can be beneficial, right? When you don't have a lot of emotion and you don't react, it it is crucial in times of panic. When you have someone's chest open, you know, you're not feeling emotional. On the other end, that can lead to God complexes and being difficult Mm -hmm. to work with and all that stuff. Dr. Robertson, uh, may I call you Matthew? Of course. Matthew, I'm the new guy around here and I want to make friends, so I'll say this to you and we'll start fresh. If you don't like my jokes, don't laugh. If you have a medical opinion, please speak up and speak up loud. But if you ever again tell me or my surgical staff that we're going to lose a patient, I'm going to take out your lungs with a fucking ice cream scoop. Do you understand me? I'm not going to like you, am I? Don't be ridiculous. Everybody likes me. There's a reason sometimes sociopaths are like really successful in their careers. Exactly. They can harness (laughs) it for good, but then they can also show that menacing side or what can be menacing if they are challenged but yeah i think they made a point to show the lifestyle of a very big house you know there's not all doctors live in this giant mansion type house right it was very clear that they wanted to present that his life at least on its face had the look of perfection and class and this boy was going to come in and just mess his shit up (laughs) well and even elements of that with the care given to even how they dress in certain scenes. Yes. And, you know, your kid gets sick and you have a team of the finest doctors all working on you. Yeah. Now, we don't all get that, right? They're even flying people in from exactly, all over the country. Exactly. Yeah. And how it meant nothing in the end, right? Because yeah. what was going to happen was going to happen. It was faded. Yeah. And you're right. Because Martin's class doesn't mean shit in this movie. Martin is, again, so otherworldly and oh, this awkward pasta eating force of nature that you can't do anything about regardless of where he comes from. Oh, the last thing I wanted to say is I saw a lot of people obsessing over the machinations. Like, how did he kill these people? Was it poison in the, in the drink or the MP3 player? Did it hypnotize uh-huh. him? And it's like, to me, that is completely irrelevant. Yeah, not, that doesn't it's matter. It's the premise, but it's not the point, right? We're yeah. starting with Barry can do these things. And it doesn't really matter how, because that's not what the movie is about. He just can, right? And sometimes you just have to kind of accept that to, to get into the actual movie itself so to me it didn't even occur like it's being treated like this big mystery and i bet you even 
Lathamos, he probably doesn't even know the answers to that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I don't think he's it's concerned not what with he's that. concerned he's with, exactly. It. So there's no right answer to that. You and I talked about that before we were recording, that mm-hmm. it's the same with the lobster. We don't stop and question, okay, how are they turning people into animals? That's not the point. Yeah, they just that's, are. That's not all the point. Don't get hung up on that. Yeah. Other weird little last bit things that I thought were kind of fun. Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell had just completed filming Sofia Coppola's remake of The Beguiled. They literally left that set and like two weeks later started filming this movie. And both of those movies were at con in competition against each other. And it kind of ended up that Lanthimos of Filippo won best screenplay and then Sofia Coppola won best director. So there was kind of an interesting like, oh, both of these movies with these same exact stars, but in very different dynamics. Like if you know anything about The Beguiled, especially when it comes to like power dynamics between genders, it very much is flipping what this movie is doing in a lot of ways. So that was kind of a weird, oh yeah, 2017, man, lots of good shit in that year. The other thing that I thought was funny, and this was thanks to the often fucking insane IMDb trivia nonsense that people put on there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of Batman connections in terms of the cast. (laughs) So the actor who plays the anesthesiologist, Bill Camp, he appears in Joker. Alicia Silverstone, who we've not even fucking actually mentioned, who plays Martin's mother in this. Oh, God. Wild piece of casting to see her after all these years. God, that was so cringy, that whole scene. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She obviously is in Batman and Robin. Suit me up, Uncle Alfred. Oh, my God. Bruce, it's me, Barbara. I found the Batcave. We got to get those locks changed. Wow, that's a thrive. I haven't thought of that movie in ages. I totally forgot yeah. <laughs> she was in a Batman. Wow. Uh-huh. That just like uncracked a neuron I haven't like activated in like 20 <laughs> yeah. years. Okay. Oh, you should absolutely go back and watch oh, look, it. Derek and I are both Batman fans. And typically the thing that comes up on the show a lot is what member of the cast of this movie did a voice in a Batman cartoon? That's cartoon, always yeah. the weird thing that you can find. But yeah, I love there is a lot of crossover. So yeah. Alicia Silverstone's Batgirl and Batman and Robin. Nicole Kidman is in Batman Forever. Colin Farrell has been considered to play Batman multiple times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not shocking. And obviously just played the Penguin. And Barry Keoghan played the Joker in the new Matt Reeves' The Batman. What the fuck? Yeah, just wild. Which, after seeing his role in Martin, yeah, I could see it being the Joker. <laughs> you totally see it. It's just kind of one of those like, do we, do we really need another Joker? Joker? Yeah, no, we don't. Just move on. Yeah, yeah, just move, move on from this. Yeah, you know, he now right now he's the weird off-putting guy of the hour, especially now with Saltburn, yeah. like the creepy, yeah, very strong actor. So I could see they're like, well, let's roll him into the Joker. Yeah. What are qualities the Joker has? Um, he's a fucking sociopath. He has a weird haircut. And he apparently has a big wiener. That's all we know about the Joker. Let's go on from there. So he seems like a perfect person to play the Joker. God, I'll take him over fucking Todd Phillips Joker, though. Or fucking, speaking of cult leaders, Jared Leto, yeah. Jared yeah, Leto's Jared Joker. Leto. Yeah. Oh, God. That one, I kind of recoil. Damaged. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. I have nothing to say about the other stuff, but that particular, I was just like, is Joker supposed to be scary? Because I'm just feeling really 
embarrassed for him right now. That was a feeling. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think it's supposed to be like that. But yeah. Woof. Yeah. Well, there are much better movies, audience, that you can be watching that aren't the Justice League, the Snyder Cut four hour extravaganza. You can watch some like genuinely unsettling, cringy shit that is doing that on purpose. And a good example <laughs> of that is the movie we've been talking about, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which everybody should check out. As well as your recommendations earlier, Nina, because, again, they were all very apropos to this movie. Yeah. yeah, make a weekend of it. You'll just be so uncomfortable the whole weekend. <laughs> yeah. I would also throw in, and again, Nina and I talked about this before we were recording, Dogtooth. I think most U.S. audiences are familiar with The Lobster and this movie we've been talking about, Killing of Sacred Deer, and The Favorite, which won several Oscars, and now Poor Things, which is currently out, so great timing for us doing this episode. But his early movie that was his breakout that I believe was nominated for Best Foreign Language Feature the year that it came out is Dogtooth. And talk about, again, a massively uncomfortable movie about family and how families can be, uh, let's just say, a little problematic and fucked up and have some deep-rooted issues that they need to work through and about how keeping your children from the true horrors of the world can maybe fuck things up for them and how sometimes an outside force enters your life and your family's life and drastically throws everything off. That is a very good pairing with Killing of a Sacred Deer because it's a lot of the same general themes and absurdity and uncomfortableness. So I would definitely recommend people seek that one out. I believe it is probably very easy to find on some streaming platform now. Hell, it's probably on Tubi for all I know. But I would definitely check out Dogtooth as well. That is a great pairing with this movie if you want to check out more of his work, especially like his pre-Hollywood, or uh, Hollywood's not the right word. This was not a Hollywood movie. Pre-mainstream, I would say. So that's where I will cut myself off. So do you guys have anything else to say before we wrap up? No, no, this this was, <laughs> I'm glad you chose this, Nina. This was a good excuse to finally watch this movie. Hell yeah. I remember in 2017 when it came out, people kept talking about it, and it keeps popping up more and more every time I'm on horror Twitter or film Twitter. Like It has aged well, it seems like, too, and I'm glad it didn't get caught in a clown on it a little bit now, but like the A24, like every ghost story is about trauma, get it? Yeah. Art house <laughs> that we get now, because I think this separates itself from that. And don't get me wrong, I do love the Babadook. I do love It Follows, even though they are also partially to blame for a lot of that. But this is operating on a different wavelength. Yeah. Yeah, this is on a different yeah. wavelength. I really enjoyed this. So, and anytime you want to do cringe horror like this, all for it. I love it. Oh, great. So many people don't. You could be our cringe horror guest. I'll and be your totally expert in cringe and discomfort. Because I'm going to put them on the spot. My, my best friend, Sean, uh, who's been on two of our episodes, he was on our Tremors episode and our episode on the Burbs. He hates anything cringe. He hates cringe comedy. He hates anything that makes him feel uncomfortable. Oh. And I, I'm the opposite. I'm like, mm, yes, make yeah, me feel mm, delicious. Give it to me. Feed me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was joking with Nina earlier. That meme that you see that gif from a season of Survivor, where it's that group of people that are all standing and watching in horror as something ridiculous is happening. And the camera just cuts that one dude off to the side that's just maniacally like Jack Nicholson smiling. <laughs> yeah. like, that's how this makes me feel. And I kind of love these movies for that. Those memes of like, that's my fetish. Like, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. ev everyone in horror and then the one person smiling. That's my fetish. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, that wraps up this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie 
podcast where we discuss movies from various subgenres and eras and talk about real life scares and social phobias and fears and you know how that affects us as long-term horror fans like Nina and I and uh horror newbies like Derek. Yeah, am I still am I still a newbie at 5 years in? You still are cuz there's still a lot of the staples that you haven't seen. We'll we'll say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You're you're getting there. You're yellow belt, I guess. Cool. Nina, thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun. I definitely would like to have you on later. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Where can people find you besides obviously your podcast again Twisted Mirror, a fiction and true horror anthology? That can be found on every podcast platform. Yeah, so you can look up Twisted Mirror on pretty much any podcast platform. It's there, or you can go to twistedmirrorpodcast.com, and there's links to the show there. But it's pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just type in Twisted Mirror, and you'll see it. Hell yeah. Yeah. And be in show notes like usual, listeners. So check out our show notes, too, for that information when this episode drops. Awesome. Oh, and Whitney, who was on the show recently, she narrated an episode. It's called Blessed Are the Meek, so you get to see her narration skills. Nice. Yeah, again, Whitney from True Crime Campfire. Also, check out their show, too. Hell yeah. Cool. As per usual, you can find us on, again, every podcatcher out there. And that's partly thanks to the fact that we don't have fucking ads for mattresses and ball shavers and green nature drinks and dial-up therapy hotlines and all the other dumb shit that we hear ads for constantly if you listen to podcasts like i do hey if, if it gets you paid go for it but like, i mean yeah, sure we, we want to keep our, our show ad free because i personally am driven crazy by that and i don't want to have to monitor myself for the things that i'm saying it really does bother you i just skip past and i'm fine <laughs> well whatever i don't want to have to uh monitor what i'm saying in order to keep sponsors so guess what we have a uh, Patreon now. And on that Patreon, you can find lots of bonus content. Uh, We have some great stuff coming for you in the next couple of weeks. We took a little bit of a break on that for the holidays as well, but that is going to be up and going soon. Five bucks a month, less than a fucking cup of coffee at a lot of the bullshit places like Starbucks. And you got hours and hours more content from us where we're digging around the edges of things that people have been asking for. Like, why don't you guys talk about TV? Why don't you guys talk about video games more in depth? We also do movie commentaries. We're going to have interviews. We have all kinds of extra stuff there. So a lot of that extra fun shit is there and uh, you can get it for five bucks a month. So definitely consider jumping on that. Please spread the word. Getting access to all kinds of stuff. Yes, absolutely. Spread the word, please. If you are a listener and you enjoy our content, let your friends know. Patreon.com slash watch if you dare. Again, patreon.com slash watch if you dare. Only five bucks a month. And yeah, the more people we get on there, uh, we'll open up new pledge levels and start getting new content, start getting more fan interaction um, involvement once we get more people joining in. Um, that also helps keep our show ad free. Although, hey, if Bloody Disgusting or Shudder ever want to hit us up for a sponsorship, we're <laughs> wide open to that. But otherwise, yeah, like Aaron said, it helps us pay for all the hosting fees and uh, our equipment and everything else. So thank you for those yeah. who already contribute and please consider contributing and please consider telling your friends to contribute if they already listen to our show. But thanks again. Yeah. And as per usual, you can find us on all the social media platforms at Watch If You Dare. We are active on Twitter and Facebook. We do have Blue Sky and Mastodon, question mark. 
Um, although those are not very active because, you know, what the fuck are those platforms? We're still trying to figure that out. And then, yeah, as always, big thanks to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for the music bumps that he provided at the beginning and ends of our episodes. You can find more of his music at Bandcamp uh, if you search for Opossums, Big Clown, Party Gator, all these weird little side projects that he has. So check out his music, throw him a couple bucks. If you're in the Memphis area, keep your eyes open because they occasionally play shows around. So definitely go check him out. Say hi. And beyond that, I just want everybody to remember a podcaster never kills a listener. A Sally can kill a listener, but a podcaster never can. I'm going to eat my spaghetti now.